So I've had a long history with Murray Bowen and his famous theory. My very first lecture as a professor was on Bowenian theory. At the time, I was 26 and terrified out of my mind. The night before I had to give the lecture, I almost quit my assistant teaching gig because I was so terrified. I remember I was pacing back and forth in my apartment and so close to just picking up the phone and saying, I give up. I, 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 I Never mind. I don't want to be a teacher. This is too terrifying for me. Uh, I'll just be a therapist and, and that'll be that. But I didn't make that phone call, and the next day I stood up and gave my lecture on Bowenian theory. And as I think about it right now, perhaps Bowen himself might have told me at that moment as I gave that lecture or the night before when I decided that I would actually do it instead of quitting, he might say that my intellectual guidance system had prevailed over my emotional reactivity, thereby I was expressing my differentiation. So since that first lecture, I've continued lecturing on Bowenian theory to my family therapy students and counseling students. I've also supervised postgrad therapists who considered themselves to be Bowenian therapists. Among other family therapists, when I talk to them, we often use Bowenian terminology. Mainly, we use words like differentiation and triangulation because there's really no other words in our field that capture what those words mean that Bowen invented. I've also used this theory in my own work with my clients. And as a professor in a family therapy program for the past, well, let's see, since 98, so almost 17 years now, I've used his model of self-differentiation as a model to encourage therapists in training to grow as a person and, and become better therapists. In other words, in, in the program that I teach, one of the things that we require that all the students do is to learn Bowenian theory, and then we encourage them. They're not required to because that would be taking it too far, but we encourage the students to do similar family of origin work that Bowen did himself that I'll explain later. So, so another area in which Bowen is in my life is, to be honest, I, I've used this theory as a guide to grow as myself as a person. I've used this theory to guide my efforts to differentiate from my own family of origin. So Bowen has been a part of my life since I was first introduced to him in graduate school when I, when I started in 1995. And the rest of today's episode will be about that. I have 29 pages of notes, and based on past experience, that means this episode is going to be quite long, so sit back and get ready. Hello and welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a licensed therapist. Okay, so Murray Bowen, let's, let's talk about him. He just as a synopsis here from the start, was among the pioneers of family therapy, and he was an early systemic thinker. And even though he died 25 years ago, and his theory is 50-plus years old, nearly every family therapist continues to study his theory in graduate school. So today's episode is a, a very comprehensive look at the man and his theory. 
I've I've read several books on Bowen, and I've read several summaries of him, and I've given it a lot of thought myself, and I've moved things around the way that you know each person describes, even Bowen himself describes his theory in a particular way. And I think it can get confusing sometimes. So I, I sifted through all of that and, and clumped things together in such a way that I hope is more easy to understand. So again, sit back and get ready to be Bowenized, as I am just putting it right now. Bowenized. Okay. All right. So history. He was born in 1913. So if I was a more produced podcast, this is the point where, you know, the music of 1913 would pop in, you know, think, I don't know, Dixieland jazz or something. He was born in a small rural town in Tennessee, the town of Waverly, Tennessee. His father was the mayor of the town for a bit, and he was the oldest of five children. That's an important detail to remember, uh, but I'll talk about that later. So again, he was the oldest of five children. In 1937, at the age of 24, he received his MD at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. Initially, as a medical doctor, he was interested in surgery. He was not interested in psychiatry or counseling or therapy. Then World War II began, and this was during his his late 20s and his early 30s. So during World War II, he was a medical officer in the Army. Uh, I, I believe many young men were involved in the military at some some way, shape, or form during World War II. And since he was a medical doctor, he became a medical officer in the Army. And during the war, while working with the soldiers, he observed that the psychiatrists that were treating the soldiers didn't seem to know how to treat the soldiers very well. And therefore, he was a little bit intrigued by that. He, he's watching the psychiatrists work with the soldiers and thinking, they don't seem to know what they're doing with these people, or at least that was his claim. Okay, so after the war, 1946, at the age of 33, he started working at the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the Menninger Clinic correctly. Menninger, Menninger Clinic of Topeka, Kansas. He was a fellow in psychiatry and psychoanalysis, so at the age of 33, he switched from being a physician to to being a psychoanalyst and, uh, and in psychiatry. And like so many other founders of family therapy, he started off as a Freudian psychiatrist who specialized in schizophrenia. For whatever reason, in the 40s and 50s, if you were, if you were interested in becoming a family therapist at some point in your life or that was burgeoning in you, you were working with schizophrenic people. So... Uh, so it's just if you know your history of family therapy, then that will be familiar to you. Um, for whatever reason, many researchers at the time were trying to figure out the cause of schizophrenia. It was quite a boggling condition. And at the time, they didn't have the ability to scan the brain or to measure genetics the way we do today. And so it was primarily seen as some kind of issue involving inner conflicts or this sort of thing. So so the idea was if you conducted enough research, you'd be able to, to find the key to schizophrenia and, and thereby reverse the, the course of the disease or, uh, or eliminate it from the population altogether, the, the way that you might be able to eliminate polio or something. So that's the way they saw it. Uh, it turned out they 
that was not the case and schizophrenia uh, today is, is seen much differently. I won't go into that. But anyway, at the time, that was what a lot of people were at least hoping was true. And so a lot of researchers were, were working on it and there were, was a lot of funds being allocated to research, to research schizophrenia. And Bowen worked on some of these early funded projects. So as I said, he was a psychoanalyst. And even though psycho, psych, psychoanalysis was by far the dominant theory at the time, he began to not like it. He began to think it had its problems because he thought it was too subjective and not scientific enough. He wanted therapy to be a, a scientific research-based enterprise, and he, he saw psychoanalysis as being largely subjective, meaning that the, the analy- it really depended on the analyst's opinion of the problem. You know, you'd put 10 analysts in a room and you'd get, you know, widely different uh, statements about what a particular problem was and, and why it was there. And so he, he wanted to find a way to make therapy more scientific. It was a big hole in therapy at the time. Today, there's a lot more evidence-based therapies, but at the time, there really wasn't. So he began to think outside of the box that was was psychoanalysis, and he noticed that the family was an element in mental illness. He began to see in the 40s and 50s, he began to hypothesize that the, Ill, the mental illness of schizophrenia didn't exist within individuals, but existed in the family. So, he, so initially, he had mothers and schizophrenic children live in cottages for several months so he could study them. So I just want to repeat that. <laughs> you know, because they had so much funds and, and because he had the, the resources, he, he wanted to test out his theories. And, and one of his theories was that the schizophrenia was a problem that existed between the mothers and the children and the children with schizophrenia. And so he had the mothers and children live in these cottages at the clinic so he could treat and study them and try to figure things out. And after much observation, he began to believe that enmeshment between the patient and the mother was the cause of the schizophrenia. He called it symbiosis. He thought that these mothers were immature and using their children to fulfill their own emotional needs. And through this, schizophrenia would develop in, in that particular child. He posited that schizophrenia was a result of, quote-unquote, emotional stuck-togetherness. So he used this. He, he liked to use terms that were fairly unique to him, I guess. But So he had this term, emotional stuck-togetherness. Later, he would call it fusion. But, but at the time, uh, he called it emotional stuck-togetherness uh, between the mother and the child. So, as we can see, this is the beginning of his grand theory. Okay, so skipping ahead to 1954, at the age of 41, he moved his research to the National Institute for Mental Health, or NIM, in Bethesda, Maryland. And here, instead of just having the mothers and the child, he had the the whole families with the schizophrenic patient living in this in the psychiatric ward, so he could treat them and study them. So he he broadened it from from the mother child relationship to the whole family, and he re, he reportedly worked with over five hundred of these so called schizophrenic families. He observed families from a scientific viewpoint, like a biologist observing apes in the wild. 
he began to believe that the problematic fusion or emotional stuck togetherness wasn't just between the mother and child, but between several members of the family. And he would notice what he would eventually call triangles in the family. So since he was leading this research effort, he was in charge of a lot of therapists. He was supervising them, and he assigned different therapists to each family member. So this so-called schizophrenic family would have a mother, a father, uh, the patient, and siblings, and each family member, family member would have their own therapist. And this was a common practice back then. Family therapy wasn't really around yet, and so it was believed that each family member ought to have their own therapist. But then he noticed that this created dysfunction in the clients because the clients would complain to the therapist about the other family members instead of working it out with each other. And so he observed that the therapists were becoming part of the problem. They're becoming part of the fusion, part of the emotional stuck togetherness, since they were being used by each family member as an aligned confidant. The family members were running to their therapists rather than working out their differences directly with other family members. He thought these therapists were being used by each family member to perpetuate the family dysfunction. He saw this as dysfunctional triangulation or just triangulation. So he changed the treatment modality and assigned one therapist to each family and told the therapist to not allow themselves to be triangulated or pulled into the family dynamic, which I'll go into more later. But this is when he started formulating that part of his theory. He also began attempting to reduce fusion and reactivity in the entire family. In this way, he was a major figure in early family therapy and that he saw the family as the problem, not just the symptom bearer as the problem. Blame was not on the individual, but on the multi-generational systems. The dysfunction was within several generations of family members, not just the person with the symptoms. From there, he furthered his theory through rigorous research you know, those 500 families that he studied, and attempted to refine and popularize his overall theory of human behavior. His theory was initially called family systems theory, but this is confusing because family systems theory is what is, is it's a general term uh, in today's world. So it's now referred to as natural systems theory because he, he also used that term as well. But um, however, most people don't call it family systems theory or natural systems theory. Most people, including myself, call it Bowenian theory or Bowenian therapy. Therapists who practice this form of therapy call themselves Bowenians. Okay, so skipping ahead to 1959, at the age of 46, the NIM project ended and he began working at the Department of Psychiatry at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and he was there for 31 years until he retired in his late 70s. At Georgetown, he worked with outpatient clients instead of inpatient. So this was his first foray into what we might call lesser symptomatic clients. And he found that the outpatient families were just lesser versions of the so-called schizophrenic families. So he generalized his theory to all types of psychological dysfunction. 
So not only schizophrenia, but depression or defiance or anxiety or marital conflict or whatever. He, he generalized his theory uh, that was developed mainly with schizophrenic patients and their clients to, to all people of all presenting problems. So in 1966, that's a notable year for Bowen in that he published his famous journal article titled The Use of Family Therapy in Clinical Practice. In 1972, he wrote his most famous paper, or he published his most famous paper. It was titled, it was titled Toward a Differentiation of Self in One's Family. I highly recommend reading it if you're interested in Bowen. It's, it's really the quintessential Bowenian paper. And it's interesting to read because it's not a typical journal article on that. It, it's kind of a story in a way. He, he published it initially anonymously to protect his family members' identities because he was writing about his family in the journal article. But everyone knew it was him since it was all about his theory. So eventually he claimed ownership. Um, I, I couldn't find anything as to what his family thought of him writing it because I'm sure they came across it because it, it was really quite famous. So in this paper in 1972, he detailed his long effort to differentiate from his family of origin. If you haven't heard the term family of origin before, it's the family you grew up in. So your, your parents, your siblings when you were a child. So even though he had moved far away from his family of origin, remember he's now in Washington, D.C., and his family was from a small rural town in Tennessee, he realized that he had unfinished business even though he had moved far away. So to practice what he preached, he set out to differentiate from his family of origin, and he applied his new concepts to himself. So again, remember I, I said that he was the oldest of five children, and from the, the looks of it, it seems that he came from a very enmeshed family, meaning an infam a family that, that is involved too much with each other. They, they know each other's business. They, there's drama. There's rumors that go around the family. There's a lot of contact. From the outside, it might seem like they're very close, and to some extent they are, but, but many in the family might might see it as a little too close. And they're also in a rural community where, again, in all likelihood, the community might have been fairly enmeshed when you compare it to city life. This isn't to say that enmeshed families and rural towns are not ideal. It just breeds a particular kind of issue in families. And so uh, he seems to come from that environment growing up. So in this paper, he wrote about how he systematically in interacted with his family in a way to differentiate from them. He set forth to remain calm, to remain detached, and not get defensive, and all of this was in an effort to differentiate from his family of origin. It's kind of funny to read because, in a sense, he was messing with his family by by breaking a lot of long-standing patterns. For instance, one of one of the long-standing patterns that he had with his family is that his his parents would complain to him about the other parent. So his dad would come to him and say, "You know, my wife, your mom is such a blah 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 blah," and then he would Bowen. Murray Bowen would sit with that, and that would create tension for him. He didn't like 
to hear his dad talk bad about his mom because he was loyal to his mom and his dad. And then he would go to his mom and his mom would complain about his dad. And again, he would feel bad about it. And he, he, the whole thing just seemed dysfunctional to him. So, so when he was going through this effort of differentiation while he's writing this paper, uh, he writes about how when his parents would complain to him about each other, he would just go to the other parent and tell the other parent what the other parent said, which naturally bothered them, right? So, you know, dad says to Murray, your mom is such a blah, blah, blah. And then Murray just goes right to his mom and says, did you know that dad, your husband, is saying this and this and this about you? I just thought you should know about it. And and he would say it in this really matter-of-fact way. And, of course, the dad would say, why are you doing this? It's like, you're not helping me out here. But but what this did is this de-triangulated him because the system was under a new set of behaviors. He was no longer participating in the triangle between him and his parents. And what the effort did, or what he thought it did, was that it helped the parents speak more directly with each other instead of using Murray as this outlet for their frustrations. And so he believed that this not only helped him to differentiate himself, but also helped his parents work out their issues. So he was trying to break free of the enmeshment in his family of origin because he thought this would free him from his own issues in his own current family. So not only would this alter his relationships with his family of origin to make them better, but he believed in his theory that through that process, this would indirectly affect the way that he interacted with everyone in his life, not just his family of origin. In the end, Bowen was very happy with his work, and he later required that all of his therapists in training would do the same work with their families. And that tradition is carried on today, and I'll get into more of that later. All right, so skipping ahead to 1975, so that was 1972 and that work was published. So 1975, at the age of 62, he founded the Georgetown Family Center in Washington, D.C., it's now called the Bowen Center. He served as the director there until his death in 1990. There, he and others trained therapists in his brand of therapy. Throughout his career, Bowen continued to assert that therapists used their intuition too much rather than basing treatment on theory and research. So he was big on theory and big on his own theory and really thought that therapists should be more scientific in their approach. Also, he required therapists to work on issues of differentiation of self from their family of origin, as I mentioned. He believed that therapists who work on their family of origin were better therapists since they could remain more differentiated in the face of client anxiety and tension. And incidentally, the program that I teach in has followed in his footsteps, as I was mentioning earlier. We don't require our therapists in training to do it the way that Bowen would, but, but we encourage it. 
And incidentally, in 2015, the Bowen Center is still there. It continues to train therapists in Bowenian theory and technique. Okay, so skipping ahead to 1977, at the age of 64, he became the first president of the American Family Therapy Association, which should not be confused with the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, which is a more famous association. But anyway, he he became the first president of, of that association, the AFTA. In 1978, at the age of 65, he published his famous book, Family Therapy in Clinical Practice, which details his theory and technique. And as I mentioned earlier, in 1990, at the age of 77, he died. Before and after his death, he trained many notable disciples, including Michael Kerr, who became the second director of the Bowen Center after Bowen's death. Kerr wrote a famous book with Bowen titled titled Family Evaluation, which was published in 1988, just before Bowen died. Another notable disciple of Bowen is Roberta Gilbert. She is the writer of Extraordinary Relationships. It's a famous book about Bowenian theory, theory, published in 1992. And it's a book that I require my students to buy and read. It's an easy read. She writes in a very easy-to-understand manner, and it's a good introduction into Bowenian theory. Other notable disciples are Kathleen Wiseman, Philip Gurin, Thomas Fogarty, Betty Carter, and Monica McGoldrick. Monica McGoldrick is a very famous family therapist and author of many prominent books in family therapy and multiculturalism. Okay, so that's the history. Now let's get into the theory portion of the episode. What do you say? The theory potion. Portion. Theory potion? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if you could have a theory potion, just like drink a potion and then you know the theory? That'd be nice. Okay. The theory, again, as I said earlier, is either called natural systems theory or family systems theory, confusingly, or it's just called Bowenian theory. And I prefer Bowenian theory because it's the most understandable. Because if you say natural systems theory to the average therapist, my guess is they wouldn't know what you're talking about. And particularly if you said family systems theory, they would think you were referring to general family systems theory. So Bowenian theory, theory is, is a good uh, label for it. So what can I say about the theory overall? Well, it's a, it's a very neat and tidy theory in that all the parts fit very well together. It's also fairly easy to grasp, like attachment theory, and it doesn't take a lifetime to comprehend, like the entirety of psychodynamic theory or psychoanalysis. You know, as a studier of psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory, I can tell you that I'll never be able to grasp it all. But Bowenian theory, you can you can grasp uh, fairly easily. It's 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 a little complicated, but but not too complicated, which is I think nice. And, and a testament to his ability to construct something that was understandable for students and clients, by the way. He, he would teach his theory to his clients. What else can I say about his theory? Well, he, he bridged psychodynamic theory, you know, and psychoanalysis, which is where he came from, that emphasizes past relationships. He, he, he bridged psychoanalysis with systems theory that focuses on current family interactions, 
which is nice and dear to my heart because I am actually developing a theory that's a similar bridge but in a different way that's more psychodynamic-based. So I, I can relate to Bowen in that way. Because of this, it's sometimes called a transgenerational family therapy or a psychodynamic family therapy. In this category, in this umbrella of transgenerational or psychodynamic family therapies are theories like Whitaker's symbolic experiential the- therapy or Naj's contextual therapy or Ackerman's approach or, or even object relations is sometimes lumped in with this. So Bowen is in that, is sometimes lumped in with those theories because they, they share that, that similar bridge between psychodynamic theory and family systems. The theory is very popular in family therapy circles. However, Bowen was never focused on family therapy, ironically. He wanted to construct an accurate theory of human behavior in general, and it just so happened to fit well within the family therapy profession. So it it seemed that he wasn't particularly interested in trying to appeal only to family therapists. I think he was trying to appeal to everybody. What else could I say about his theory overall? It's it's one of the only fully fleshed out family therapy theories in that it attempts to address personality development and treatment. Most other family therapy theories don't do this. There are some, but 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 Bowenian theory is really the the main rigorous theory that family therapy can hold up as a rigorous theory. Okay. So let's get into his theory. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about his theory in the way that I like to think about it. It's not the way that other people write about it, so it's, it's just a particular way that I like to categorize his thoughts. He, he categorized his theory into eight different interlocking concepts, but honestly, it's a little confusing in my mind to understand it that way, and so I just have a series of of different concepts that are, are, are laid out differently. But anyway, so the first concept within his theory that needs to be understood is his concept of togetherness and separateness. This is a major part of his, of his theory. It's a core theori- theoretical concept uh, in that he believed that there are two opposing life forces— of togetherness and separateness. We, we need both togetherness and separateness in our lives to survive. The togetherness force is a force to be with others. It's a force toward attachment, a force toward gaining approval from others. This force is expressed in friendship, family, and, and society, in social relationships. It's sometimes referred to as fusion by Bowen. But Bowen's terms in this way can be confusing at times because the term fusion is often, is often associated with dysfunction, yet togetherness is not necessarily an indication of dysfunction. So I prefer never to use the word fusion when talking about Bowenian therapy. I mean, I might, I might use it occasionally as we talk, but, but his, his concept of fusion was a little confusing. <laughs> and so I like to use other synonyms in his theory that uh, I think are, are more suitable. But anyway, so so he believed that uh, we have these two forces, togetherness and separateness, and togetherness is this force toward attachment, and separateness is a force, is an opposing force to the togetherness force. This force pushes toward defining oneself as separate from others. 
this force compels us to have our own beliefs and thoughts. It's a force towards independence from other people, a force to not be crowded or smothered. You know, we can all imagine feeling smothered by somebody that's being too clingy, as we might say. Well, that's, that's the force of separateness within us. Bolin asserted that these are core opposing forces for all humans, and we strive for balance between these two forces. And if they are balanced well, we can be intimate with loved ones while remaining individuated. So these forces need to be kept in a functional balance in order for symptoms not to arise. And when they're not in balance, that's when symptoms arise. The second main concept that I'll talk about, so the first one is togetherness and separateness. And the second one is the family emotional system. This is another core concept in Bowenian theory. Bowen asserted that the emotional functioning of humans is a part of a quote-unquote natural system. That's why it's called natural systems theory. Uh, he, he thought that emotional systems of, fa- of people are natural systems that follow the same laws that govern, that govern other natural systems, like the laws of gravity. So he, he really had a grand view of his theory. He, he saw the, the, the way that families interacted as, this, as a similar process that, that other natural systems operate under, like gravity or other animals exist within. So the family is just another natural living system like, like any other system. The family emotional system has been shaped by evolution. So he thought that the way that families interact is based on the way that humans evolved. So it's more easy to see it in other animals. For example, when, when herds, you know, a herd of cows, when they, they act as one unit – we, you know, we don't see individual cows when they're in a herd. We see the herd, you know, moving or buffalo as they're, you know, trampling something. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I haven't, actually, I have seen buffalo in real life a few times. Anyway, um, I was going to say I only see in movies, but that's not true. Also, flocks of, of birds behave to some extent as one unit. Schools of fish behave as one unit. And the family emotional system behaves as one unit. He also said that groups of cells act together as one unit. You, you, you know, your whole immune system acts as one immune unit, even though there are individual cells within that, within that system. And so even though there are individual family members, there's one family emotional system. So this is another main concept of Bowenian theory. Similar to the evolution of herding and flocking behavior, nature created the family emotional system. Therefore, families should be treated as natural systems rather than separate from nature. That's where, again, the term natural systems comes from. Bowen believed that families act in predictable and observable ways to danger and anxiety, similar to the ways that herds and flocks react to uh, danger in a predictable way. So instead of looking at families as separate from nature, he wanted to see families as, as a part of nature. And in the same way that we observe other animals, he wanted us to observe humans and try to predict their reactivity to danger and as a, as a way of 
being able to study that, you might be able to help them with that. Okay, so the first, again, the first core concept is togetherness and separateness, those two forces. The second one is the idea of the family emotional system as a natural system. The third core concept in Bowenian theory is anxiety. So it's a bit misleading, the word anxiety, and I wished he would have used a different word because in today's language, anxiety means something, I think, different than what he, than, than, the, than the way that he used it. He defined anxiety as the arousal of an organism when it perceives a real or imagined threat. Uh, for example, a buffalo gets anxious, the buffalo communicates anxiety, and the anxiety ripples through the herd. So this is you know, the, one of the ways that he would look at anxiety. But really, think of it not as anxiety, if, you're the, if you have the same definition as I do of anxiety. Think, think of it as a general term for emotional tension, not for fear necessarily. It can be for fear. But think of it as emotional tension, like the fear of disapproval or relational discomfort or fear of rejection or just general stress. So when we use the word anxiety in Bowenian theory, I like to just think of it as stress or discomfort or tension. These words are often used interchangeably with the word anxiety. So he believed anxiety was a part of nature and therefore a part of the family system. And he saw three types of anxiety. There was acute anxiety, which is intense and short-lived. There was chronic anxiety, which lasted over a lifetime or even over generations. He would see anxiety being transferred from one generation to the next. Or it was infectious, meaning that it rapidly spread in the moment through the system, through the emotional system. So again, you have acute anxiety, chronic, and infectious. Bowen believed that anxiety moves through the system and gets transferred from one person to the next without getting resolved. This is an important key concept in his, in his theory. He believed that anxiety or tension or stress, these things impair the ability for individuals to think and reason. This is an important uh, idea. He believed that it impaired the intellectual guidance system. It, it challenges differentiation and increases fusion. He believed that anxiety, uh, that, that when humans are anxious, the emotional system is stimulated, which overrides the ability to think clearly and produces automatic and uncontrolled behaviors. So he thought that anxiety was really the bane of our existence. He believed that anxiety manifests in, fam in the family emotional system as individuals struggle to balance togetherness and individuation. So again, this is how his theory all fits together. So he believed that when individuals are struggling to balance the, f the forces of togetherness and individuation, anxiety or tension or discomfort or stress would manifest. He believed that chronic anxiety is the basis for all psychopathology and all presenting problems and all symptoms in therapy. Uh, some people might be surprised by that, but again, he was really trying to devise, as many theorists do, a theory that explains everything. He wanted one theory to explain everything. He didn't want his theory just to explain one particular problem that people come to therapy for. for. He wanted to explain everything. So he believed that this chronic anxiety was the basis of all presenting problems. 
and that the only treatment for this anxiety was differentiation, which I'll get into later. Okay, so again, we had togetherness and separateness. We had the family emotional system. We had anxiety. And now the fourth core concept is, is the way I'm defining Boanian theory is the idea of basic self versus pseudo self. So he believed in this, in this concept of that he coined basic self and, and pseudo self. The basic self, or otherwise known as the solid self, is a solid part of the self that is not swayed by others. So basic self is your, is your core you-ness, so to speak. It has less permeable boundaries to other people. It's your, your core you. It's, it's what you really want to do. It, it encompasses the way that you would really like to act. And the pseudo-self, which is the opposite of the basic self, is sometimes called the functional self. The pseudo-self has more permeable boundaries with other people. It's not the quote-unquote real self. It's a version of the self that someone creates to please other people. It's not the real self. That's why they call it the pseudo-self. The pseudo-self is affected by other people. It's swayed by anxiety and tension. It's affected by the family emotional system. And it's not the real you. And so the, the idea is that it's ideal when you're manifesting or expressing your basic self rather than your pseudo-self. That uh, as you are more healthy, you have more basic self than you have pseudo-self and that sort of thing. Okay. So the, the fifth main concept is the idea of the two inner guidance systems. So, so Bowen asserted that we evolved two different inner guidance systems. One is the emotional or feeling guidance system, and the second is the intellectual or reasoning guidance system. The, the feeling guidance, guidance system involves emotion, automatic reactions, knee-jerk reactions, instincts, and animalistic urges. This guidance system is found in reptiles and mammals and is a process of the limbic system or the inner brain. So as an example, a colony of ants reacts to someone stepping on the anthill. They all run about. Some may not even realize what the threat is. They just react because others are reacting. So this is the instinctual feeling guidance system. It's the individual ants aren't thinking, oh, here comes a foot. That might hurt me and my family. I should run about. No, they, they're just reacting out of instinct. As another example among humans, your spouse annoys you, so you react without thinking and call your spouse a name. You know, you, you say, you're a... You're a you're an effer. <laughs> you're a mother effer or something. And then later you regret that. Well, that 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 behavior is motivated by the feeling guidance system. It's not well thought out. And so the other guidance system opposed to the feeling system is the reasoning guidance system or the intellectual guidance system. This reasoning guidance system involves thinking, judgment, logic, and rational thought. This guidance system is a strength particular to humans and is a process of the prefrontal cortex, we could think of it. That's not the way he would have said it, but that's the way we would say it today. 
Now, he thought that we needed both guidance systems to guide our behavior. But when we're stressed, we lose access to our reasoning guidance system. And when we're stressed, we lose the ability to differentiate between the feeling guidance system and the reasoning guidance system. So th- this people sometimes get hung up on this, and, and I'll talk about it more later. But again, he believed in in he believed that humans have these two guidance systems and the ability to differentiate between the two of them and choose between the two of them is an important part in Bowenian therapy. Okay, so to review uh, the different core concepts, we have togetherness and separateness. We have the family emotional system. We have anxiety or tension. We have the basic self versus the pseudo self. We have the two inner guidance systems of feeling guidance and reasoning guidance. And now we have the sixth core concept, which is normal family development. So how, how did Bowen consider normal families? You know, how did he define that? Well, he considered optimal development to occur when the parents are differentiated from their own family of origin. And he believed that optimal development of children occurred when anxiety in the family is relatively low. So the environment is is a consideration in Bowenian theory. So if, if, the, if the country is going through a war, then anxiety goes up and therefore optimal development suffers or development suffers. And, and he also considered optimal development to occur when the parents have a good one-on-one relationship with each member of their family of origin and other people in their life. He really believed in the one-on-one relationship. He didn't like groups of people interacting. He, he really privileged the one-on-one relationship. And there's some wisdom to that, but, but that's how he thought. So that was what he thought in terms of normal family development. And he, he thought that individuals and families were normal when they were higher differentiated, when they managed to keep anxiety or tension or discomfort low in their life. That was what he considered to be healthy living. Regarding pathology, he, he rejected the term mental illness and instead preferred the term emotional illness because he saw pathology as a relational or emotional issue. So again, as I was talking about earlier when he was studying schizophrenic patients, he, he, didn't, wanna, he didn't want to call the patient he, – he didn't want to see it as the patient having a mental illness, which, which put the problem within the patient, the individual patient's head. He instead tried to generalize the illness to the family by calling it an emotional illness. And, and he saw pathology and presenting problems as a relational issue. He strongly asserted that symptoms and dysfunction result from stress and lack of different and lack of differentiation from one's family of origin. He saw that he thought that this is what led to pathology. And the lower one's differentiation level, the more symptoms would arise from stress. Okay, so the seventh core issue that I think should be discussed, it's sort of an outlier. It's not really, I, I wouldn't even call it a core issue. It just doesn't really fit into any of the other categories, is his idea of overfunctioner, underfunctioner. 
Sometimes when two undifferentiated people come together, Bowen believed that their roles became complementary, meaning they fit together well, but they were opposing to each other. And, and they would become polarized with one person becoming a sort of a parent to the other person being an overfunctioner and the other person assuming sort of a, a, de- a dependent role and being called the underfunctioner. So when, when these couples would come in to, to therapy, it would seem like you would have a, a very problematic spouse and a very well-functioning spouse. But Bowen asserted that both people are undifferentiated and they're both playing a part in a fused complementary dyad in that one person is choosing to play the role as the underfunctioner and the other person is playing the role as the overfunctioner. And he believed that this was a way of family emotional systems. It was a way for, th- for them to handle fusion and anxiety. So the overfunctioner was characterized as the person who gives advice. They worry about their spouse a lot. They feel responsible for their spouse. They tend to talk more in therapy rather than listen. They tend to be more dominant. They, they tend to have goals for the other person. And over time, they periodically will burn out and say, I can't do this anymore. I can't take care of this family. But then they, they quickly take up their role again as the overfunctioner. The underfunctioner is characterized as the person who asks for advice. They tend to solicit help a lot from other people and they will act irresponsibly. You know, they, they'll forget things. They'll, they won't show up for appointments or they will be disorganized, this sort of thing. These people tend to listen more than talk in therapy, and they tend to lack internal goals, and they are often quite ill and symptomatic, and they might even become addicted. So the overfunctioner, as I was saying earlier, is often seen by the layperson as being healthy, even though he or she isn't really. Because without the underfunctioner, in the overfunctioner's life, the overfunctioner would too develop symptoms. So the 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 two the duo the dyad is a team, and the underfunctioner is just expressing the fusion that exists in the family, and the overfunctioner gets to deny their fusion, so to speak. So this concept is very similar to projective identification within psychoanalysis and psychodynamic theory. I just want to point that out. Okay, so so in Bowenian language, another way of putting this, uh, this over-functioner, under-functioner idea uh, into language is that in a symptomatic marriage, is what they would say, symptomatic marriage, one partner shows greater passivity under stress than the other partner. The symptomatic partner shows greater apparent dependency and will tend to give in to arguments. And that the complementarity between the fused partners allows the couple to merge together. It allows them to reduce conflict because they're each taking a role. And it allows them to form some form of closeness. The reason why they take on these polarized roles is that it allows them to have some amount of closeness. 
even though they both have to make major sacrifices to gain that closeness. So it's not as if people become underfunctioner, overfunctioner, just for no reason. They do it because they're trying to uh, gain some intimacy with their partners. Okay, so to review the different concepts, we have we have togetherness versus separateness. We have the family emotional system. We have anxiety or stress. We have basic self versus pseudo self. We have the feeling guidance system versus the reasoning guidance system. We have normal family development versus pathology. We have underfunctioner versus versus overfunctioner. And now we get to the core, most famous concept of Bowenian theory, differentiation, or otherwise called differentiation of self. This is by far the central concept of Bowen's theory. Basically, in my opinion, differentiation is another word for maturity. It, some might argue with that, but, but just think of differentiation as a, as a sort of a technical, well-defined word for maturity. If someone is differentiated, they're able to think before they act. They can deal with disapproval and stress easily. They are able to navigate relationships with relative grace. But I'll explain more about that later. So just, so just know that that's the, a synopsis of, of the concept. So, so remember that in Bowen's early career, he hypothesized that enmeshment between the mothers and children created the conditions for schizophrenia. And he thought that the cure, so to speak, for the mothers and, and the children was for them to differentiate from each other so they could become less reactive and therefore less symptomatic. Also remember that he was very enmeshed with his parents and he saw his well-being as being tied to the ability to break free of that enmeshment. So remember that that's where he comes from and so that's where this word differentiation, I think, comes from. The term differentiation came from the biological term used to describe the process of cell specialization. So remember that he was a medical doctor, and he studied differentiation of cells, and Bowen posited that all organisms strive for differentiation, and this applies at the cellular level and at the organism level and among all animals, that differentiation was an important natural process. In this way, he was attempting to explain all things and ground his theory in a more accepted scientific terminology. Because remember, he was wanting therapists to be more scientifically based, and so he incorporated this word differentiation from the medical field. Also, it should be noted that early in his career, he used the the, the term undifferentiated family ego mass, which is a you know uh, a sort of a lot of words. It's so undifferentiated family ego mass as a word for the opposite of differentiation, which is sometimes referred to as fusion. But he would later use the word fusion instead, or as what I like to use is the word undifferentiation because it I think is less confusing as the word fusion in his theory. So in a general sense, basically, Bowen observed people displaying automatic behavior. He observed them acting with their knee-jerk reactions. They seemed to be acting instinctually without thinking about their actions before they did them. He saw that some people could use their thinking capacity under low stress. So in other words, he, he saw that people under low stress 
could use their thinking capacity. They could actually act in a way that they wouldn't regret later, but they would quickly revert to automatic reactive behavior when they were stressed out and that this was the cause of the pathology. And he saw that other people that were different from the people that would that were very reactive, he saw that other people could display the capacity for thinking and reasoning under low and high stress levels. These people, he saw, had a choice between reactivity and reason even when they were very stressed out. They, these people, he thought, they, they knew how to differentiate between their automatic reactions and their intellectual, well-thought-out choices. So... I'll get into more of that later, but he basically was observing people and thought, boy, that person has a lot of problems in their life. Why is that? Well, I think it's because they can't differentiate between their knee-jerk reactions and their thoughtfulness. They're not mindful of what, what they're doing, and they just react out of discomfort or stress or anxiety rather than thinking things through. I think that's why this person has problems in their life. And then he would turn to other people and he would see people functioning really well. And he concluded that that was because they were able to, when, when they're under stress, they were able to figure out how to proceed. And they were able to hold on to their basic self rather than trying to please other people. So Bowen believed that humans have evolved to strive for differentiation. He, he saw it as a natural systems issue, right? And he thought that humans evolved the inner force to uh, strive for balance between individuation and togetherness. So remember that first core concept of, of separateness versus togetherness. He believed that humans strived to figure out a balance there. So, so to get deeper into the concept of differentiation, you really need to know that differentiation is used to describe two different processes, and this really can become confusing to people sometimes. And, I, and again, I wish he would have used perhaps two different words for it, but he didn't. He, so differentiation is used in two different situations. It, it's used in an intrapsychic uh, situation, intrapsychic process, and an interpersonal process. So differentiation is sometimes used to refer to the ability to differentiate between the emotional and intellectual guidance systems. So in other words, can you differentiate, as I was saying earlier, between your feelings and your thinking? Just choose between the two. When you're stressed out, can you, can you think things through a little bit? Can you be thoughtful before you act? And differentiation can also refer to the ability to differentiate between oneself and other people, particularly one's parents. So this is the ability to be intimate with others while also remaining separate and individuated. This is the ability to not get swept up in the family emotional system against your will. This is the ability to remain objective and flexible under pressure. So again, differentiation refers to the ability to differentiate between your emotional and intellectual guidance systems, and it's used to refer to your ability to differentiate between yourself and other people. And and Bowen believed that these two abilities to differentiate are related to each other, which is perhaps why he used only one word for it. He believed that if you improve one of the abilities, the other ability will also improve. And if one possesses a poor ability to differentiate 
in in one area, then they will then they will possess a poor ability to differentiate in the other area. For instance, if you have the ability to be thoughtful about your behavior and have access to your intellect when under stress, then in all likelihood you'll have the ability to have a to have a balance between togetherness and separateness when you're in relationships. Whereas if you have difficulty with being thoughtful, then you'll have difficulty differentiating between yourself and other people. Uh, and, and the reverse is true as well, that if you have the ability to differentiate between yourself and other people fairly well, then in all likelihood you'll have the ability to think under stress. So other terms that people might use for these two guidance systems are instinct versus reason or feeling versus thinking or heart versus head or gut versus mind. These are other terms that people might use for the two inner guidance systems. So again, as I was saying earlier, Bowen believed that low levels of differentiation is the these are the primary causes of dysfunction in individuals and families. Now, it's important to know, because this is a common confusion, that differentiation is not necessarily physical separation from your caretakers or your parents. Some people think that, you know, it's, you know, when I explain this to students, they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm very differentiated from my, from my parents. I never see them. I, I never – I don't hang out with them anymore, and I'm never reactive to them as a result. Well, this is not differentiation necessarily. It might be, but, but it's not necessarily uh, being differentiated. Uh, Bowen, you know, in Bowen's own life, he observed in himself that even though he had moved far away from his hometown in Tennessee to live in Washington, D.C., he still was not differentiated from the emotional system of his family. He still recognized that he had unfinished business. So he believed that just because someone has little contact with their family of origin, that does not necessarily indicate that that person is differentiated. Disengagement and distance are evidence of a certain degree of emotional fusion, even though the fusion might be denied or out of the person's awareness. So just because you're cut off or disengaged does not mean that you're differentiated. Um, undifferentiated individuals might not currently be emotionally reactive to their parents because they're very distant from them. Instead, their emotional reactivity has been transferred to others in their current emotional field, like their current spouse. So it's just a, a, an important thing to remember that distance does not equal differentiation. In fact, Bowen would say that differentiation involves having a, a frequent relationship with your family of origin, one that's based on one-on-one -on -one relationships and one that's based on health and differentiation. Um, <clears throat> another point within the differentiation concept is that Bowen believed that we are attracted to people romantically and in friendships that have similar levels of differentiation. And I'll get into more of that later. Okay, so... I, there are a lot of different characteristics that have been attributed in the literature to differentiation, and I'm just going to kind of ramble them off. So first I'm going to talk about the words and the phrases that are, that are characterized at higher levels of differentiation, and, and next I'll do lower levels. So at, at higher levels of differentiation, and a lot of these are my words, so, so take them with a grain of salt, but at higher levels of differentiation, basically, in a nutshell, it's maturity under stress. 
So differentiation does not mean that you're mature per se, because anyone, when they have no stress, can act mature, can can act in a thoughtful way. So differentiation was really a, a uh, it was really tied to stress. So when you're stressed, when you're anxious, can you remain differentiated? Can you differentiate between yourself and other people? Can you differentiate between your thoughts and your feelings? So at higher levels of differentiation, these people are said to have less emotional reactivity. This is actually a term that I, I like to use, reactivity. You know, it's, it's when people act without thought. It's when people act without their emotional, without their intellectual guidance system. They're reacting mainly out of their emotional guidance system. So it's the ability to calm one's emotions, the ability to differentiate and choose between the emotional and intellectual guidance system. It's the ability to identify and execute the inner guidance system and work from a place of your basic self. It means that you're capable of thoughtful consideration. People at higher levels of differentiation are better at decision-making. They are more thoughtful and intentional with their decisions. They have the ability to make their own decisions rather than giving in to the pressures from other people. They tend to have fewer physical problems, which is interesting, right? He tied it to physical, physical problems. People that are highly differentiated have fewer mental problems, emotional problems, and social problems. Basically, they're relatively free of problems is what he, th was what he thought. People that are differentiated have a more orderly life. They're less chaotic. They're more successful. They're more adaptable. They're more resilient. They ha they're less vulnerable to stress. They have the ability to recover from stress quickly, and they can tolerate stress and conflict more easily. People that have a high level of differentiation have a strong sense of self. They're self-sufficient. They're secure. They have the ability to speak from an I position, and I'll get into more of that later. They, they, their basic self is more accessible as opposed to their pseudo-self. They easily express stable convictions and beliefs, you know, as things that they might say is, this is what I do, and this is what I don't do. This is what I believe, and this is what I don't believe. Now, we could see that going either way for some people if they're being really dominant with it. But in general, when you talk to someone they, that's differentiated, they tend not to be very easily swayed by other people because of the things that they've thought about, they're, they're fairly secure in what they believe in. Now, that doesn't mean that they're rigid to their beliefs. In fact, flexibility is an important part of being differentiated. But, but they have convictions, you know, like – I believe in recycling. And when they're around people who aren't into recycling, they don't give in to those people. They just say, well, I'm into recycling, and, and even though you don't agree with me, uh, I'm still into recycling. Whereas undifferentiated people will give in to pressure around them and, and adapt to, to others. In other words, they express more pseudo-self. People that are highly differentiated are self-defining and self-validating. They're able to soothe and validate themselves. They have the ability to adapt and cope and reach their own goals. They invest less energy in maintaining a sense of self when involved with others. So undifferentiated people have to exert a lot of energy to remain differentiated, whereas differentiated people with a baseline higher differentiation level, they don't have to spend as much energy. 
they have a lesser concern of the approval of others. They have lesser concern about getting emotional rewards from others, and they're not as reactive to praise or criticism. Words to describe differentiated people are autonomous or not fused or individuated or mature, as I said earlier, or emotionally healthy or independent. People who are differentiated are relative, have a relatively low amount of unresolved emotional attachment or a low amount of unfinished business with people in their past. They're more flexible and balanced. They can, they can get lost in intimacy if they want to, if, if they feel like it. They can totally lose themselves in intimacy uh, when they wish to. But when they do that, they don't get lost in the relationship. And when they do that, they don't have too much anxiety about it because they know at any time they can pull back. They're not prone to being emotionally detached, but instead they have a balance between emotional expression and reason, between togetherness and separateness. You know, again, some people think, well, if you're differentiated, you're a very cold person. And contemporary Bowenian people would never say that. They would just say that you have a balance. People who are differentiated are able to advocate for themselves and advocate for the group. So they don't advocate just for themselves or just for other people. They are able to advocate for both. So they're assertive. People who are at, at higher levels of differentiation are better in relationships. They have the ability to create healthy and clear boundaries. They have the ability to tolerate conflict, the ability to cooperate with others and to express healthy altruism. They're tolerant of other people. They're less prone to triangulation. They have, in other words, they have the ability to talk with their loved with their loved ones without talking about other people through triangulation and without talking about impersonal things. So they're able to talk directly to people without going to other people to confide in or to pull into their relationship. They have the ability to extricate themselves from an emotional entanglement. They don't get stuck for too long when they don't want to be stuck. They gain more respect from other people. They're more attractive to others as a friend and as a partner. They don't have the need to route one's anxiety through other people. They're able to soothe their own anxiety. And they're, they're more willing to express altruism and, and cooperation rather than compliance out of anxiety. That's an important distinction is that just because someone is, is being helpful does not necessarily mean that they're being differentiated because a differentiated person will willingly cooperate and be altruistic, whereas an undifferentiated person will comply because they're really anxious about pleasing the other person. Highly differentiated people are more realistic about their self-evaluation. They're not too self-critical, and they're not too narcissistic. So again, undifferentiated people might be very self-critical or, as a defense, very narcissistic. And the last thing that I'll say about people that are at higher levels of differentiation is that they don't need a therapist very much. <laughs> you know, highly differentiated people tend to not need therapy, even though they might go to therapy. In fact, I might even hypothesize, I, I haven't seen research on this, that highly differentiated people might be even more likely to go to therapy because they're not as worried about the dependence or about the judgment that might come from a therapist. Okay, so that's high levels of differentiation. What can we say about low levels of differentiation? 
So again, as I said earlier, they're sometimes called fused people or undifferentiated people. Their thoughts and their feelings are fused together. They have difficulty differentiating between their reasoning guidance system and their emotionally reactive guidance system. They're more emotionally reactive. They have a reduced ability to identify and execute the inner guidance system. They're, they're, they're very reactive to, to what the situation you know, is, is giving them. They have difficulty reaching decisions, and they have difficulty solving problems. They engage in overly emotional, automatic, involuntarily regrettable reactions. <laughs> so overly emotional. Uh, they, they react automatically, involuntarily, and they often later will regret their actions, even though they might be in denial of their regret. But you'll find that the more regret someone has, the, the less differentiated they are. They're what we might call reactive rather than thoughtful. They, they tend to make bad decisions. They might be rebellious, overly rebellious to people or overly compliant. They might have a lot of conflict in their life. They might have a lot of distance in their life, and they might have a lot of cutoff in their life where they're cut off from other – where things get so bad where they just have to cut themselves off. And they have a tendency to repeat problematic behavior and not learn from their mistakes. They tend to be fused with other people. Not only are they fused intrapsychically between their inner – their two inner guided systems, but they're also fused with other people. They're unable to separate themselves from others. They're affected by others very easily, and they have poor interpersonal boundaries. In a sense, they borrow other people's functioning, and they have difficulty differentiating between the self and the other. This tends to produce poor relationships. Undifferentiated people remain in their family of origin role throughout their life. So whatever role they had or were given by their family of origin when they were a child, they tend to remain loyal to that role whether they want to or not for the rest of their life. And uh, people who are undifferentiated tend to become fused with other people and share an emotional response among the group. So again, if you're in a group of people and something is happening that is uh, tension that you know is involving stress and tension and discomfort. Even though you don't want to fall into the abyss of their emotional reactivity, if you're undifferentiated, you'll have a hard time not giving into that, and and you'll end up absorbing their emotional reactivity much more easily. Undifferentiated people tend to have a lack of a sense of self. They comply rather than willingly cooperate, as I was saying earlier. They, they have more concern about the approval of other people, and they have more concern about getting emotional rewards from other people. Again, they have more pseudo-self rather than a basic self. They express more of the self that they make up in order to please other people or to, to deal with relational anxiety. They're, they tend to have a weak or unstable personal identity. They lack goal-directed thought. Their feelings are dominated by other people's feelings. Their feelings often involve other people rather than a thoughtful consideration about how they would like to feel about it. They're sometimes very dependent. They express a high need for security and safety. 
they might even borrow other people's identities as a way of having an identity because they lack one. They're very other-oriented rather than being self-oriented. They have a lot of chronic tension, anxiety, and discomfort in their life. They have greater physical symptoms. They have greater mental symptoms and social problems. They tend to have more addiction. They tend to have more of a chaotic life. They're more vulnerable to stress and have greater difficulty recovering from symptoms. They tend to be more sensitive. When other people express autonomy and individuation, they might feel this as abandonment. They, They have a difficulty tolerating conflict. They tend to be less flexible and less adaptable. They tend to have rigid role patterns and rigid communication patterns. They, they can't adapt to the situation. They can't learn from, from past situations. They tend to have more triangulation, which I'll get into later. They sometimes deny their own need for intimacy. They will become very, quote-unquote, independent because they can't tolerate their own need for closeness. They tend to use other people to unload their feelings rather than soothing themselves. They tend to project stress onto one of their children. Things get so bad over time that they expect relationships to be dysfunctional. They just they become hopeless. And along these lines, they tend to repeat dysfunctional behavior that derive from their family of origin. So undifferentiated people tend to repeat the same relational problems throughout their life. And they tend to have a lot of conflict in their life. They tend to be focused on conflict rather than focused on their own life, their own issues. So in other words, they, you know, they, they might be very preoccupied with the fight that they had with a friend and they might complain about that friend a lot instead of reflecting on themselves and saying, what was my part in it and how can I resolve this for myself or should I even be friends with this person? They tend to blame others. They tend to be critical. They tend to judge differentiated people as being very cold. So when they interact with a differentiated person, they might feel, as I said earlier, abandoned, or they might just judge the person as being very cold because they don't play the same game that they play. They might even be abusive, but certainly not all of them. They might tend to be more jealous. They tend to try to change other people. This is an important piece that I'll get into later. Undifferentiated people are very interested in changing other people rather than accepting them. Okay, so that's a very long list that I came up with to characterize people who are highly differentiated or low or lowly differentiated. Okay, so an interesting part of the concept of differentiation that Bowen put forth is the idea that you can rate someone on a scale from 1 to 100. He proposed this scale for individuals and families as a whole. So you could rate an individual, say, I think this person is a differentiation level of 65, or you could say this family has a differentiation level of 65. Higher numbers indicated more differentiation and lower numbers indicated lower differentiation. Now, it wasn't meant to be a scientific psychometric scale. He only meant it to be as a tool for clinicians to subjectively estimate someone's differentiation level. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was meant to be very scientific. So what affects one's differentiation level? Well, I, I've, I've kind of talked about it earlier, but just to be clear, the level of one's differentiation is determined by the following factors. 
it's determined by the degree of differentiation of the parents. So how reactive were your parents? How enmeshed or disengaged or conflictual were they? At, at higher levels of enmeshment or disengagement or, conflictual or conflict, then that tends to produce children that are less differentiated. Other, another factor in your differentiation level is the manner in which your parents have managed the attachment of their own marriage. So the level of conflict between the parents or the level of enmeshment or disengagement between them will also affect the offspring's fusion level. Another factor in your differentiation level is the degree of stress in your parents' lives. As I mentioned earlier, that Bowen was a big believer, a big believer in anxiety and stress as having a major role in people's pathology and their issues. And when your family or your parents go through a lot of stress, this tends to produce children that have lower levels of differentiation. And the last factor uh, that affects your differentiation is how anxiety and discomfort and stress was handled in your family. So say, for instance, you have parents that have low differentiation. Well, if they were in therapy and they had a Bowenian therapist helping them with their stress, then that might be able to help the parents to act as if they're at a higher level of differentiation when their baseline is actually low, but they're acting at a higher level because they're able to talk things out with their therapist, then this will produce children at a higher level of differentiation. So again, how differentiated were your parents? How did they you know, react to things? Um, how did they manage their marriage? What kind of stress did the family go through? And how did they handle that stress? So from that, you, you know, you can start drawing some broad conclusions. You might say, well, divorced kids are less differentiated. Well, that's not necessarily true, I, and I think most Bowenian therapists wouldn't think that way. I mean, obviously, divorce can lead to a lot of problems, but it doesn't necessarily lead to problems. You know, I think, I'm pretty sure I've read research that, that, that has found that it's not whether or not a family, you know, parents get divorced or not. It's how they handle the divorce that really matters. And it's also, you know, we can certainly see marriages that stay together that aren't very functional, that aren't very healthy for the children. So parents can divorce, and if they divorce well, then the idea is, is that the differentiation level will not be harmed in the children. Okay, so Bowen believed uh, that this number that you were rated at in terms of your differentiation level would stay the same at the point that you left home. So your differentiation level is being developed as you're a child, and then whatever number you have when you leave the house at, say, 18, 20, then that's the number you have for the rest of your life for the most part. It's, it's, it's mostly a fixed number. But they can function at a higher level if they manage their life well or if they manage to do some other things. Conversely, if, you know, whatever number they're at, if they experience stress, they'll, they'll express a lower level of differentiation. So stress is a, is a major element in how much differentiation a person expresses, but, but it really depends on the baseline. So if your baseline is, is 90 and you experience stress, then you might get pulled down to a 60. Whereas if you're, 
you know, a 50 and you experience stress, you might get pulled down to a, to a 20 or something. So it's important to, to have an idea of what someone's baseline differentiation level. And again, this isn't a scientific number. It's just a subjective guide for therapists to think about and maybe clients as well. Okay, so changing one's base, what, you, what you're probably thinking out there, if this is new to you, is you're thinking, how do I change my baseline level of differentiation? Well, Bowen believed that it would be very difficult because he actually tried to do it himself, you know, but, but, he, but it can happen, but it's very slow, uh, but there are many benefits to it. People, upon raising their differentiation level, will have, a, will have greater well-being, and their relationships will will get better. So so there's there's a lot of benefits to raising one's baseline differentiation level. So the the way that you can raise your differentiation level is either by becoming aware of and managing your emotional reactivity basically by just being, you know, very thoughtful and having a lot of skills around how to handle stress. And the other way that you can raise your differentiation level is to detriangulate from your family of origin and possibly other important relationships. So this was actually kind of an innovative point. I mean, I think most people would agree that if you're trying to be more differentiated, that if you have skills around differentiation about being thoughtful and mindful and this sort of thing, that, you know, it's likely that that's going to help. But what, what, but the innovative part of his theory is is that he thought that if you went back home to your parents and became less fused and less triangulated into their relationship, that that would raise your baseline level of differentiation and that would be generalized in all of your relationships. So it's kind of an interesting concept in that way. And again, seems rather particular to him based on his own life experiences, right? Also, another way that differentiation level can change is that it can change from one generation to the next. So if parents or caretakers manage their attachment and their relationships well, and or if the family enjoys good fortune and low stress, then this will produce children at a higher level of differentiation than they would have had otherwise. An important thing to, to note that sometimes students will ask me about is that one can never, quote unquote, achieve high differentiation and then, and then just sit back and enjoy life. Instead, you really need to see it as one is always striving to be more differentiated throughout their life, that, that no one can just say, I've reached 100, like you're playing a video game, and now I don't need to do anything more. It's, it's, it's not like that. So uh, don't, I don't recommend seeing it that way. And a final point about differentiation is that we, we tend, I think I mentioned this earlier, we tend to choose mates and spouses with similar levels of differentiation. This can be quite shocking to a group of therapists because often when, I, when I'm talking to therapists in training, they're the overfunctioner in their relationships. You know, when I was talking about overfunctioner, underfunctioner, well, often therapists, because they're, you know, very helpful and very responsible, they tend to, if, if they have a problem with fusion, they tend to attract people that need a lot of help and that are irresponsible and that have a lot of symptoms, particularly when they get around the overfunctioner, which is always interesting to see. Is like whenever you separate the overfunctioner and underfunctioner, the underfunctioner tends to have a lot less symptoms, which is very interesting. But 
But anyway, when I'm talking to therapists in training and I say, you know, you probably have, have chosen mates that are very similar in differentiation level to yourself. And there's a lot of gasps in the room because, because they do a sort of mental inventory of the people they've been in relationships with. And they, and they think that's no, that can't be because I've been involved with a lot of undifferentiated people in my life. Not all students say this, but, but some, and, and the idea that Bowen would put forth is that you, you were the overfunctioner and that you needed the underfunctioner to be in your life so that you could feel superior, so that you could feel like you don't have problems since the other person in the relationship has so many problems that basically masks your own problems. So it's just something to think about. A little depressing sometimes, but, you know, who said psychology and psychotherapy doesn't have some of its depressing elements? <laughs> That's a very funny statement to say. I don't know what I think about it. Okay. All right. So we have reviewed differentiation at length, but let's review the, the concepts again. So we have one, we have togetherness and separateness. We have two, we have the emotional, family emotional system. Three, we have anxiety or stress. Four, we have basic self versus pseudo self. Five, we have the feeling guidance system versus the intellectual guidance system. Six, we have normal family development versus pathology. Seven, we have the underfunctioner versus underfunctioner. And eight, we have differentiation of self, which brings us to nine, which is triangulation, which is a, another major concept, very popular concept within Bowenian theory. Bowen's idea of triangles is really quite specific, but the concept has been expanded by family therapists, including myself. So, so the following is a melding of uh, the following discussion that I'm going to give is a melding of both Bowen's limited definition and my broader definition of triangulation. So, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, Bowen believed that triangulation is the natural way that humans deal with emotional stress. So through observation of clients and through observation of himself and his own family, when he saw two people getting tense, he saw that they tended to pull in a reliable third person to dissipate the tension. Remember I was talking earlier about how when his parents would have conflict, they would pull him in to their relationship, creating a triangle. This was a major conceptual element in, in his theory and had implications in treatment and assessment and everything. And it's, and it's really a, a popular idea in, in therapy. So as an example to this, just to ground this in some kind of example, for example, a, a husband gets upset at his wife, and instead of working it out directly with her, he increases his involvement with his daughter until the marital conflict subsides and then decreases his, marital, his, his, and then decreases his involvement with his daughter. As another example, two siblings get in an argument, and the mother runs to the rescue, and when the fight is over, the mother leaves them alone. So this is the full process of triangulation, that there's, there's a rise in tension, the third element is brought in, the tension is reduced, and the third element goes away. So in other words, triangulation refers to the tendency to involve a third party as a means of mediating and relieving the anxiety and conflict that exists between two individuals. Bowen realized that no two-person system stands in isolation. 
he always saw that there was a third party that was at least somewhat involved, particularly when they were stressed in, in the dyad, in the two-person system. And, and he also saw that the third party was involved when needed, but only when needed. And that when the, they didn't need the third party, then the third party was somewhat rejected. Now, this is, again, getting into kind of the, the limited way that Bowen saw it. Um, I, I have a more broader definition, but this is the way he saw it. So basically, this is, this is how he saw it. When things were calm, the two-member system have a, a comfortable emotional alliance with each other, and the third member is in the quote-unquote outsider position. So the two people are getting along and everything's basically fine, and the third person is, is basically an outsider. And then in tense situations, the outsider is seen as, a, as useful to the other two who will predictably make efforts to involve that third element somehow. And I'm saying element because sometimes the third party is not a person. It would be a thing, but I'll get into more of that later. So when the third party is involved, this is an attempt to reduce and manage the anxiety of the original dyad. And Bowen observed that whenever there is enough anxiety, a vulnerable third is always involved. He called it a vulnerable third, meaning that they were vulnerable to triangulation. So he, he observed that regardless of how differentiated someone was, because people at higher levels of differentiation tend not to triangulate, but, but even among high, highly differentiated people, when there's enough stress, two, two people will always involve a third person or a third element. And sometimes over time within the family emotional system, the third person might become programmed, quote unquote, to triangulate themselves whenever tension rises in the dyad. So the third person might, might triangulate themselves automatically because they've just been trained to do so over so many years. So these triangles allow the dyad, the two-person system, to maintain an, an optimal level of closeness and distance. So remember, the, the forces of togetherness and separateness are in all of nature, according to Bowen, and that they want to be in balance. And triangles help to balance that. So another way of putting that is that the third person or thing becomes a stabilizing element in the dyad. So Bowen believed that as anxiety and tension builds in the dyad, the anxiety does one of three things. It either pulls in a third person or thing, you know, it just like the, the dyad, you know, pulls the third person into the dyad. Or the anxiety overflows to the third person without pulling them in necessarily. Or the anxiety attracts a third person to initiate involvement with the, with the dyad. So in other words, the, the, when the dyad has, has a problem, they either actively seek the third and, and sort of yank them into, into the dyad, or the two people have a problem and the third person is just nearby and the third person sort of forces their way in. So, it, and, and you can kind of tell the difference between these two things. You'll, you'll see the way a triangle acts. The, the, the third person might sort of reluctantly get pulled in and willingly participate even though they don't really want to, or they just sort of force themselves into triangles and, and help out. Specifically, Bowen saw triangulation 
as an act of one person in the dyad. He, he, and again, this is his limited version. It's been expanded much, much bigger than this, but he, he tended to see as tension mounted in the dyad that one of the people in the dyad became particularly uncomfortable and, and anxious and tense. And that person would pull in the third element or person, which would relieve the tension in a dyad, but, but it would also create tension for the third person. And again, he observed that when the triangle is not anxious and not tense and not uncomfortable, that it consists of a comfortable dyad with a lonely outsider who is at the ready to become triangulated. So how does the process play out specifically? All right, so, so just to break it down, the process plays itself out as follows. There's emotional tension or anxiety or discomfort in the dyad. Then the third person is involved somehow. Anxiety between the two people spreads to the third person. The people might engage in emotional reactivity. You know, they're very reactive and instinctual with each other and overreactive. They might become defensive. There might be counterattacks. And this all feeds the tension. This, this, this spends the emotional energy that was building up between the two people. And the system returns to calm, which is which is the ultimate purpose of triangulation, is to return the system to calm. And finally, the third person is made to be an outsider of the dyad once again. So again, this is Bowen's fairly limited definition of triangulation. Many today have expanded it beyond this rather specific example. In this way, Bowen believed that triads or triangles could tolerate more anxiety than just two people could. He believed it was the strongest relational configuration. He believed that that two people were just inherently unstable. Uh, it makes me wonder if he was affected by architecture, because I, I know almost nothing about architecture. But one thing I remember hearing is that the triangle is the, the most stable, you know, most stable shape or something. And if you have a line, you know, if you just think of a line trying to balance itself, it will, it'll easily fall over. Whereas if you have a triangle in a two-dimensional space, it tends to be extremely stable. You know, I'm reminded of those. I don't know if you guys remember, but back in the day, cars didn't have cup holders, you know, like the way that they do today. They're just standard in all cars. But there was a time when no or almost no cars had cup holders because it's like who who would drink something in their car? That's crazy. When you're in your car, you're driving. But, you know, um, they didn't you know, realize that the, the way that humans love to drink liquids all the time, particularly coffee. And so in the 80s, I remember my parents had these, had these cups that were made for the car. And they were basically triangle-shaped coffee cups because, you know, they were very – they had a very large bottom and it would get uh, tapered at the top. And this, you know, was a very stable – this was seen as a very stable cup. It also had like kind of a rubberized bottom. And so they would set the cup on the dashboard, if you can believe – imagine putting your coffee cup on the dashboard of your car and then zipping around. Uh, well, that's what people did in the 80s before they had cup holders. So – you know, again, triangles are very, very stable. Now, triangulated parties, these third parties can include people, as I was mentioning, or they can include ideas or someone's workplace or alcohol or governments or multicultural groups or the TV or a, uh, someone who's famous. So 
dyads can triangulate all sorts of things, and I'll get into more of that later. Triangulation can occur over a lifetime or in a single interaction. So you can have a stable triangle that exists in your life for your entire life, or you can just meet someone on the street and have a, have a little triangulation with that person. Triangulation can also occur on a societal level between governments or between groups of people. Like the Republicans might triangulate with the Democrats against some other group of people or something like that. So again, Bowen had a limited point of view of triangulation, and he mainly wrote about triangulation as a dysfunctional relationship pattern. But I have an expanded uh, definition that includes both dysfunctional triangles and functional triangles. Uh, my definition of a dysfunctional triangle is one that perpetuates the problem, and a functional triangle is one that helps resolve the problem. Because therapists are often triangulated into their clients' lives, whether it's individual or family therapy. You know, if a client comes into you and complains about their spouse in, in, in individual therapy, they're basically creating a triangle. And hopefully, when therapists are triangulated, the therapist can help the clients resolve their problems. And in this way, it would be a functional triangulation rather than a dysfunctional one. And you can have functional triangles in your own life. Like if you know your parents come to you uh, complaining about each other, it seems like there's a way to react that would perpetuate the problem and that there's a way you can react that might help the problem, help resolve the problem. Okay, so let's get to some examples of triangulation because this is really uh, a complicated thing and we need examples, more examples. So I'm just going to rattle them off. These are just examples that I give my students. So an, an example of, tri of a triangle is when parents scapegoat a child to avoid their marital conflict, or an anxious dyad speaks unfavorably about a third party to build an alliance with each other, or a divorce mediator calms each side of a conflictual couple, or in an effort to avoid the marital conflict, the couple argues about how to treat the children instead of speaking directly about how they feel about each other. As a societal or governmental level, during World War II, the United States was allied with Russia to fight Nazi Germany. The U.S. before Nazis, before the Nazis, the U.S. and, and Russia were not friends. Uh, the Western world, you know, Brit, Britain and, and France and the United States were, were not friends with Russia. They were very much opposed to the Russian way of living and to their people. But when they were fighting the Nazis together, they were best friends. And when the Nazis were no longer able to be triangulated after World War II, there were only, and there were only two superpowers in the world, the Soviets and the United States, the Soviets and the United States returned to their conflict. So something that could have solved the Cold War was if they had a mutual enemy to fight against, which never happened. Another common triangle that I see in family therapy is that during marital conflict, a child will step in to triangulate themselves to distract their parents from the fighting. So they might start, the child might start acting up. An example that I give sometimes is the parents are fighting and the three-year-old takes a, a pen and starts drawing on the wall and then the parents see it and stop their fighting and both turn to the child 
and tell the child that the child's being bad and take the pen out of their hand. And now the parents are aligned. They're both fighting the child instead of each other. And this is ultimately, in a lot of families, a more tolerable conflict than if parents are fighting together. Because children would rather be the target of parental hostility than to have parents fight with each other sometimes. Because if parents are fighting with each other, then that threatens the whole foundation of a family. Whereas if parents are just fighting with a child, it doesn't threaten the foundation of the family. And so some, so some families prefer to target children with their issues rather than let the marital partners fight with each other. And the whole family will participate in that dance. Another example that I, I like to give sometimes that I've observed in my own life is imagine you have a couple, say a heterosexual couple, uh, Jim and Laura. Jim and Laura are married, and, and Laura, the wife, she has a best friend named Stephanie. So whenever the married couple, Jim and Laura, hang out with Stephanie, there's natural anxiety between Stephanie and Jim because the husband doesn't know Stephanie as well as Laura does because Laura and Stephanie are best friends. So there's natural tension that builds up between Jim and Stephanie. So as a way of coping with this anxiety, one of the things that sometimes people will do is Stephanie and Jim, the best friend and the husband, will poke, will poke fun at Laura, making Laura the, the brunt of their jokes. So this allies Stephanie and Jim because they're, you know, they, they have tension, but now if they make fun of Laura, they now have an, an alliance, but it's, at, but it's at the expense of Laura's feelings. So the anxiety between Stephanie and Jim is now transferred to Laura herself. So again, just to, I hope you understand this, is that imagine you have a spouse and you have a best friend and you hang out with your spouse and your best friend. And as the time goes on, at first, your spouse and your best friend are really, they don't know each other and they're nervous around each other. But, uh, but as things progress, your, your spouse and your best friend start making fun of you. And you're feeling like, hey, why, hey, why are they making fun of me? This doesn't feel good. But it also kind of feels good because I was worried about the two of them getting along. So I'm glad that they're getting along, but why does it have to be against me? So if you've experienced that before, that's what Bowen would call a triangle. And again, it's a way of dealing with anxiety or fusion. And what, what Bowen would say and what Bowenian therapists would say is instead, Jim and Stephanie should just speak directly to each other. You know, just maybe Stephanie or Jim could just say, oh, you know, I've been really worried about meeting you because I know you're my wife's best friend and, and I, I, I'm just worried that you're not going to like me and, and just speaking more directly to that person rather than uh, being secretive and insecure and undifferentiated about it. Another example I like to give of triangulation is say a marital couple is in conflict but they don't feel like they have the ability to work things out and they're fairly fused. So instead of working things out together, they watch TV a lot. And I've seen this occasionally where you'll see couples that will just watch TV together pretty much whenever they're together. And they very rarely will, will turn off the TV and speak directly to each other. The TV is a very seductive triangulated third. 
it becomes quite a, an element in people's lives. It could be what you talk about with everyone that you know. Now, there's nothing wrong with TV. I mean, I certainly love my particular TV shows and my particular movies. But but when it becomes the dominant way that you interact with people and replaces your intimate more real interactions with people, then it really becomes a threat to the balance between togetherness and separateness. It's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's a surface thing for most people. It's a surface thing to talk about. And so it, I think it's to some extent kind of an epidemic of our age. And some last examples here that are a little funny is Anakin Skywalker, you know, a young Darth Vader, would go to Palpatine when he, when Anakin was upset with Obi Wan. So that was a it was a triangle in the prequel movies between Anakin, Obi Wan, and Palpatine. Also on the on the ice moon Hoth, if you remember in Empire Strikes Back, when Leia and Han Solo are upset at each other. Uh, Leia kisses Luke Skywalker. <laughs> so Leia triangulates Luke into the conflict between her and Han Solo. So that's another little triangle. Some would call that a sick, um, incestuous triangle. But, um, but there you go. So the triangulation process in general is sensitive to anxiety and is influenced by differentiation of self. So the more intense the anxiety at a particular time, the more triangulation will occur. The more stress a family is going through, the more likely that the rigid triangles that they depend upon will crop up. And on the other hand, if a person has a high level of differentiation, then that person will manage anxiety better without having to use dysfunctional triangulation. So a, a pretty concrete example of this is say your friend or say your sister really bothers you. Well, instead of running to your brother to complain about your sister, you can either soothe yourself about it and just accept the situation as it is or just talk directly to your sister about the problem instead of using a triangle to, to soothe yourself. But Bowen believed that if anxiety is intense enough, any person will, dis, will display dysfunctional triangulation. And Bowen believed that the primary triangle in someone's life is the triangle between you and your parents or your caregivers, that this is the most important triangle to focus on. Also, from a systemic point of view, it's important not to blame any one person for the triangulation. When I present this to students, a lot of times they'll say, yeah, my parents triangulate me all the time or something along those lines. Well, from a systemic point of view, in general, most people participate equally in the dynamic, that each person participates in the dance and that the third person who's being pulled in has a personal choice as to whether or not they get pulled in. So each person is culpable for their for their reactivity in the situation. And that's a very Bowenian way of looking at things. Bowen really wanted people to take responsibility for themselves rather than blaming other people for their problems. Okay, so you might be asking yourself, how, how do you de-triangulate or how do you not get triangulated into a conflictual dyad or an or a uncomfortable dyad? 
Well, Bowen had a very systematic way of looking at this. One detriangulates or avoids triangulation by not taking sides. So when the two people come to you, you don't take one side or another. Another thing is you don't become defensive. So if you become the target of someone's conflict, you don't become defensive. You remain as, quote-unquote, objective or neutral as possible. You also don't counterattack. You want to be as differentiated as possible. You want to express as much basic self as you can. You want to be true to yourself and be as calm, and you want to soothe yourself as best you can and mature as best you can. You want to suggest that the anxious dyad work it out on their own rather than coming to you with it. When, when one – this is a, a major de-triangulating strategy is to – when someone comes to you is just to listen and it's tempting to take sides and, and say, oh, my God, I can't – you know, say someone – at work comes to you and complains about your boss and says, "Oh, the boss, blah blah blah," and it's tempting to to turn, you know, to to say, "Oh, I hate my boss too," and blah 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 blah. But that's participating potentially in a dysfunctional triangle. And a more functional way, in general, way to react is to say, "Well, it sounds like maybe you have a few things you should say to your to our boss." because um, there's not much I can do about it. I mean, I'm here for you as a friend, but but I don't know if talking with me about all these things is really the solution. So that's a classic way of detriangulating. And kind of a shocking way to detriangulate, one that Bowen used himself with his own parents, as I mentioned earlier, is that when someone confides in you, you just turn around and tell the other the other person. So your coworker comes to you and says, you know, our boss is a butthead. And then after that little interaction, you go to your boss and you say, you know, Jane thinks you're a butthead. <laughs> and, you know, that will pretty much eliminate the triangle because Jane will not come back to you anymore after that point, right? So that's a pretty quick way to detriangulate. And one of the ways that, that I have come up with over the years to detriangulate is to over-agree with the complainer. I, a lot of times when someone complains to you, you'll probably feel this this urge to fight back against the person, again, to to be defensive and to create, you know, say you like your boss and Jane comes to you and starts complaining about your boss and Jane's saying, ah, our boss is so unfair. And you're thinking our boss isn't unfair. Jane, you're the unfair one. And so there's this urge to, 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 to counter Jane and to, to, to become conflictual with her. So the conflict exists between Jane and the boss. And now the anxiety is being transferred to you and Jane. Well, one way to avoid that that problem is to over-agree with Jane. So Jane comes to you. This is, again, this is an effort to de-triangulate. So Jane comes to you and says, oh, our boss is such a butthead and so unfair. And instead of saying, yeah, I see what you mean, you, you start really going off on your boss. <laughs> you just start, he's saying, oh my God, I know. He's like, he's like Satan. He's like, some kind of psychopath or something. I mean, sometimes I worry that if he's going to kill us or something, I mean, he is just the worst boss on the planet. And what you find is that Jane will start saying, whoa, 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 slow down. Our boss isn't that bad. 
And essentially what you've done is you've detriangulated yourself because you are no longer in a position of absorbing Jane's negativity and now you're in a position where you're just reflecting it back to her and now she now she's starting to express a balanced point of view of saying well um, our boss is is you know problematic sometimes but i guess he's not that bad and so this is another way to detriangulate you have to be careful with that one you know but um it is one way to detriangulate Family therapists, by the way, are known for some of their funny, manipulative ways, particularly in the past, and so um, this is kind of along those lines. Okay, the the next number of concepts are pretty quick, so we'll just rip through them. But again, just to review, we have the the first concept of togetherness versus separateness. We have the family emotional system concept. We have the anxiety concept. We have the concept of basic self versus pseudo-self. We have the concept of the feeling guidance system versus the intellectual guidance system. The concept of normal family development versus pathology. We have the concept of over-functioner versus under-functioner. We have the concept of differentiation. We have the concept of triangulation. And now we have the concept of the... And now we have the concept of the family projection process. In a nutshell, Bowen believed that parents target one particular child and project their undifferentiation into that one child, which made that child more fused than the other children, which means that that child had more problems in life than the other children did. So he basically, through observation, thought that he was seeing parents choosing one child because he believed they he they he believed parents treated all the children at least somewhat differently and he he saw that one of the children tended to be less differentiated than the other children and the other children in that sense are kind of protected from the parents problems so the the say the parents have a differentiation level of 50 well, they target one child with all of their undifferentiation, and that child grows up with a differentiation level of 20, whereas the other children, the siblings, grow up with a differentiation level of 60 because they were spared their parents' undifferentiation level. So Bowen believed that among siblings, you would find a, a wide variety of differentiation levels. Bowen even asserted that parents at, at high levels of differentiation would target at least one of their children with their internal fusion. So so even well-functioning parents, Bowen thought, targeted a child with their, with their um, undifferentiation. So there are a number of factors that contribute to which child is targeted by the family. And these are just my own thoughts. Maybe, maybe one of the children reminds the father of his abusive mother. So a father grows up with an abusive mother. The father has a daughter who has a seemingly similar personality. And then the parents proceed to target that child with their undifferentiation. Maybe one of the children is born with a more rebellious disposition. They have a rebellious streak in them. And that sets them apart from the other children. And therefore, the parents target that child with their fusion. So, you know, you can think of a lot of different examples as to why one child would get would get selected, but there you go. So this child that's 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 chosen, that's targeted is called the fused 
the fused child or the focused on child or the symptomatic child or the most triangulated child. And this child will become the most sensitive among the children to the tension and anxiety in the family. The amount of damage done to this child is determined by the level of differentiation in the parents and the amount of stress the family experienced. So we're seeing a theme here where Bowen often considered two two main things. He considered differentiation and he considered the stress that was happening to the family. Okay, so that was the family projection process. Now we're on to the 11th concept, and that is the multi-generational transmission process. So Bowen first departed from individual-based therapy, and he started developing a dyad-based therapy between the mother and the child. Then he realized that the rest of the family was a part of the issue, and so he became a family-oriented clinician. Then he realized that the extended family needed to be included in the equation. And then he realized that multiple generations need to be considered. So in this way, Bowen posited that individual dysfunction was the result of multiple generations of parents projecting their fusion onto their children. And then those fused children, those targeted children, those focused on children, attract you know, other undifferentiated spouses, since people are attracted to people of the same differentiation level. And those parents target one child with their fusion. And then after eight or so generations, you have a child who is extremely fused and undifferentiated and therefore has severe symptoms. So this is the multi-generational transmission process. Now, for me, I tend not to utilize this concept that it seems like it'd be a difficult thing to validate. But, you know, it's one of the things that, that Bowen adhered to. Another concept that Bowen adhered to, ad, adhered to that is dubious is the idea that sibling position affects one's personality. So this is the 12th concept. Similar to many other clinicians and theorists of his time, Bowen believed that sibling position and birth order had an effect on our personality and our differentiation level. He believed that each sibling position had its pros and its cons. For example, he thought that a young boy who grew up, who grew up with a bunch of older sisters would grow up to assume leadership easily and would be very charming. He also thought that future marital relationships were affected by each spouse's sibling position. However, subsequent research since his time has found that sibling position is a very weak predictor of personality. There are just too many other variables that have a stronger effect on personality, things like biology and culture and socialization and stress and parenting and attachment and all these other factors. So sibling position and birth order just doesn't seem to have any effect, or if it does have an effect, it's very weak on personality. But that research wasn't available to Bowen at the time, so I don't really fault him for believing in what most clinicians believed at the time. Okay, and so that leads us to the final concept. And again, this is my own categorization of the concepts. I'm even leaving some out because I, I think they're a little redundant. But anyway, the, the final concept is the 13th concept, and that is, is societal regression. So Bowen was attempting to construct a grand theory of behavior. And so naturally, this ex he, he extended his theory 
to society at large. So remember, he was first looking at individuals, then then mom and child, then family, then extended family, then multi-generations, and then society at large. He posited that society, like a family, is governed by the opposing forces of togetherness and individuation. And under stress, societal groups will fuse and individuals will lose their individual voice and thoughts. And similar to families, if we want to resolve our societal issues between groups of people, we need to remain differentiated and detriangulate ourselves and be able to use reason rather than being reactive. You know, I would say that there's definite wisdom to that assertion, right? I mean, you can definitely uh, picture in your mind groups of people in our society becoming very reactive to each other and not sitting down at the table and having a calm discussion that's logical. Okay, so those are the 13 different concepts within Bowenian theory. Now let's go on to just talk about research for a little bit. So measures of differentiation have been developed. So they'll develop these surveys that people can fill out that will produce a number that will say you are you have this level of differentiation, this sort of thing. So it probably I haven't seen one of these, but they probably have questions on there like how you know, how often do you get in conflict or this kind of stuff? So these measures have been used in other research to find what differentiation is, is associated with. And here are just some of the findings that, that I found. So higher differentiation, according to research, is associated with lower chronic anxiety. Higher differentiation is associated with greater marital satisfaction. Emotional cutoff is associated with lower marital satisfaction. So if someone has a lot of emotional cutoff with their family of origin, they tend to not have as great marriages. Lower differentiation is associated with premature termination of couple therapy, which is interesting. So they gave these measures to clients at the beginning of therapy, and those with lower differentiation tended to end couple therapy too early. Lower differentiation is associated with higher distress, it's associated with difficulties with coping, and it's associated with maladjustment to, to stressful situations. So very much in line with Bowen's theory. Lower differentiation is associated with greater psychological distress. It's associated with greater physical health problems, which is interesting, just as Bowen posited. Triangulation was researched, and it was found to be associated with marital distress. So the more triangulating behaviors you see, the more marital distress there is. And also, there's been a lot of research outside of Bowenian theory that have demonstrated that many disorders are found to be transmitted from one generation to the next, which basically supports the multi-generational transmission process that Bowen hypothesized. And there's many other findings, but those are just some of them. Now, what about research regarding the effectiveness of Bowenian theory or Bowenian therapy? Well, there isn't much research on it, perhaps because there isn't much, there isn't much attention in the clinical research community. For whatever reason, not a lot of researchers are measuring the effectiveness of Bowenian ther therapy. So that, there's that because it's, sort of it's sort of a niche market. In terms of numbers, there's not a lot of Bowenian therapists. So, so maybe that's why. But, but there is some research su suggesting that Bowenian theory 
that buoyant therapy does produce positive outcomes. And I believe that. I, I certainly can imagine that the therapy would be helpful. Okay, so that's the research. So we've discussed the history. We've, we've discussed the concepts. We've briefly discussed the research. And now let's go on to therapy. How does a Bowenian therapist use the theory? And how did Bowen himself recommend therapists operate? So what are the overall hopes and goals of a Bowenian therapist? Well, in a nutshell, Bowenian therapists have two basic goals for their clients. They want to help them manage their anxiety better so they can act in a more differentiated way. They also want to help them increase their baseline differentiation level so they can withstand relational stress without dysfunction. So again, in a nutshell, Bowenian therapists want to help their clients manage their anxiety better, help them operate at a higher level of differentiation level, even though their baseline might be low. And Bowenian therapists also want to help raise someone's baseline differentiation level. So, and this is really my take on Bowenian therapy. Other people might emphasize other things like detriangulation and stuff, but I'll get into more of that later. But in a nutshell, you're trying to help people manage stress better, manage their relationships, and you're also trying to help people uh, in the long run just have a higher level of differentiation of self. More specifically, the therapist attempts to reduce relational anxiety. They hope that in the system that they're treating, they, they hope that the system will be less stressed and therefore the system will express less fusion, which will lead to lesser symptoms greater well-being, and lesser, you know, not as much relational conflict. So you, so the, the Bowenian therapist is really trying to calm things down so that people can think better. Bowenian therapists try to help people to listen to each other without letting unreasonable emotionality get in the way, you know, because you could imagine that that would be very helpful. You know, you know, when you're trying to tell someone you're in conflict with somebody and you're you're really trying to tell them something and and they just don't listen to you well Bowenian therapists really strive to reduce this in in families because it's a major problem for people you know when you don't listen to each other a lot of problems can occur Bowenian therapists try to help people to individuate to become more differentiated. To this end, they try to help people to stop attempting to change other people. And instead, they they want people to focus on changing themselves. It's a very differentiated point of view of, well, that's the way they are, and I'm going to have to deal with that. I can only change how I deal with that. That's a very Bowenian thing to do. They also want to guide people toward assuming responsibility for their own life to be the one in the driver's seat of their life rather than living in a way that pleases other people, you know, in a way that is expressing their pseudo self or a life that is in reaction to other people being other focused. They try to get their clients to be self focused. Bowenian therapists see therapy as an opportunity to learn about themselves and to learn about relationships. There's a lot of teaching that goes on in therapy. Okay. So that's it in general. But, but how do Bowenian therapists 
specifically step-by-step help their client toward their goals. Well, I've developed the following steps based on what I consider to be Bowenian therapy. Okay, so this is these are these are my ideas here. Okay, so step one, the first step it, that is necessary is that you have to understand the theory well. You can't conduct Bowenian therapy without really understanding what you're doing. It's a it's a pretty specific theory, and you have to you have to understand it pretty well. Again, as I said earlier, it's not that hard to understand, but it does take some studying and some amount of time, and so you really need to understand it well. That's step one. You know, Bowen was big on theory, so you know, obviously, since he was constantly developing it, but but it's important to understand it. And Bowen really was critical of people that skipped this important step. Okay, so after you understand the theory well, we can go to step two, which is you have to differentiate from your own family of origin. <laughs> this is maybe not a pleasant thought for, for a lot of people, but Bowenian therapists engage in the same process that Bowen took himself. You know, as I was talking about earlier, when in 19, you know, the when he published his famous paper in 72, he was differentiating from his own family of origin, and Bowen recommended that all therapists, all Bowenian therapists, go through the same thing so that the therapist can remain differentiated in sessions with their clients because he, he thought that if you remained fused with your family of origin, you would have a, tense, uh, have a tendency to become fused with your clients. And again, uh, as I said earlier, I would go into more detail. So, so how do you do this? How do you differentiate from your family of origin? Well, basically, you detriangulate and you differentiate by conducting intentional visits with people in your family of origin, and you do it one-on-one. So you say, hey, mom, I really want to meet with you just one-on-one and talk for a couple hours. Because he believed that if you hang out in groups of people, it's impossible to stay differentiated. He he believed that you know if if you're in a big group of your family, even the best differentiated person could only hold on to their their basic self for a half an hour or something. He said that the power of the emotional system is too great, and it's too it's unreasonable to remain differentiated in in the face of a large group of people. It certainly seemed like that's what his experience was. So you really needed to to conduct one-on-one meetings with with each family member that was important to you. And he wanted the meetings not to just be social calls, but he wanted them to be very structured. So you might prepare statements beforehand in which you tell your family what you intend to do. You might say to your parents, I'm intending to differentiate. Um, I'm learning this thing, and I, and I, I really want to improve our relationship. So, so you might tell them that you're, you're trying to detriangulate and you're trying to change your relationships, but you, you don't want to make it for the worse. You want to actually improve things for yourself and everybody else. And during these one-on-one meetings with people in your family of origin, you try to remain as differentiated as possible. And, and also, if possible, you're in therapy at the time and you're talking about how to do this. It's also tempting during these, during these structured one-on-one visits to confront your parents about old resentments and try to resolve them. But Bowen recommended, and, and I would recommend the same, is to not do this because basically this scares your parents away. You know, if, if you say, I want to spend some one-on-one time with you, and then in the first meeting you just blast them with all of your complaints, well, the, the chance that they're going to agree to another one-on-one meeting goes down. And in order to differentiate, you really need that line of communication to be open. 
So, so you don't confront your, your, your family. That's also acting from a fused position in that you're not accepting reality. You're not accepting how the other person is and you're not taking responsibility for yourself. So you don't confront. You just remain calm and non-anxious. And if they try to engage in a fight with you, again, you try to just remain calm. And you try to not get wrapped up in old drama and old patterns. So you really have to become very good at identifying and assessing and reacting to the pushes and pulls of your family of origin system. So you go home and people try to shoehorn you into the role that you normally play. Well, you, you have to be very good at, at navigating that so that you don't get sucked back in to the system. And if you can do that, enough, the idea is, is that you'll become more differentiated overall. Your your baseline differentiation level will increase. So step one, understand the theory. Step two, you have to differentiate from your family of origin as best you can. And step three is when you're working with the clients is to assess the, the system and assess the problem. So you want to define the problem. You want to draw a genogram with the family. This is an important thing. A lot of genograms or, or family maps is what we might call them or family trees are, this is a thing that family therapists do a lot of. Um, you don't just draw it for yourself. You actually draw it with the family. You, you sit down with the family and draw out the whole genogram. And this offers a visual map to help family members start to see multi-generational patterns. You also might write out the family history in note form. You know, you might say, in 1983, I was born. In 1985, we moved to Japan. And, you know, these, these kinds of things. These are nodal events. And you make note of what was happening around those times, around those nodal events. You assess the family relationships. You assess the stability of the family. You assess the family's ability to adapt to stress. How did how did they how do they handle anxiety? So you ask a lot of questions about about how they handle tension. You know, when when so and so is having conflict, how does everyone react to that? You want to assess the triangles and how do the triangles operate? This can get quite weird. You know, you can't just simply ask, so how does a triangle operate? You you have to get get pretty minute in your investigation, you know. So what is what are you feeling in this moment and what are your urges and who do you talk to and what is said and sometimes the triangles will occur in in session and so you can just observe. But um so you need to know how the triangles operate. You need to know if there are any cutoffs. Is anyone cut off from each other? You need to understand the multi-generational patterns. You know, who was the most fused person in the mother's family of origin, this sort of thing. You want to assess each person's differentiation level. How differentiated is each person in the family? Who is the focused on child? Who is the, who is the most triangulated child? Who's the child that's incurring the family projection process? Okay, so that's, that's the assessment. So you, you have to spend a lot of time on assessment. Bowenian family therapy is, you know, pretty heavy on assessment. Other family therapies aren't so much, but but this one is. Okay, so step four is you have to convince the family. This is this is following strict Bowenian therapy. Not every Bowenian therapist would do this, but if you're going to be real strict to the way that Bowen practiced, you have to convince the family regarding who needs to be in therapy. 
which is basically one of the parents. <laughs> so if a family comes in to you and says, you know, Johnny is being uh, defiant and smoking pot and skipping school, well, according to your theory, the, the focused on child is not the problem. The problem is the parents and the problem resides within the marital uh, relationship. And therefore, that's the relationship that, that needs to be worked on. And the, the child's behavior will change if the parents work on their relationship. And so there's really no need to see the child. You, have to, you really just need to see the parents. And actually, Bowen preferred to work with the parent that was most differentiated, which might sound weird. You'd think you'd want to work with the least differentiated person. But basically what he thought was, if you work with the most differentiated parent, you coach that person to detriangulate. You coach that person to become differentiated. And as you change that one person, because, because that person exists in a system, the system changes as well. So if that person changes their differentiation level, changes the way they differentiate between themselves and other people, change the triangles, then the whole system will benefit and the defiant child will have less symptoms. So that might be a bit shocking to a lot of people that, you know, Bowen is, is you know, one of the quote-unquote founders of family therapy, but he really preferred to work individually with people. Now, I kind of like this personally because as a family therapist myself, I often work with individuals, and I guess in this way I'm slightly, in, in this way I'm, I'm very Bowenian, in that I, I really like working with individuals if, if I see a family, I will often break them up into individual sessions one-on-one -on -one with each family member because I find I can get things done more quickly that way. And, and I remember one time I was in a, a courtroom, and I won't go into the details, but I wasn't on trial. It was, it was a, I was just an expert uh, witness. But one of the lawyers was, was blasting me because I – was seeing the family I was treating. I was seeing each individual family member separately. And the lawyer was blasting me and saying, this, this man doesn't know how to do family therapy. And then the judge got in on it and, and started saying, yes, clearly this, this therapist doesn't know what he's doing because he's not, he calls himself a family therapist, but he's meeting with people individually. That is not family therapy. Clearly he's incompetent. I can't remember the words that she was using, but, but, and I'm just sitting there. I didn't fight back because I didn't see the real point, but, but it was really ridiculous because there's a long tradition in family therapy where, Bowen and others will see people individually while thinking systemically. So you can, you can treat a system by treating each person one at a time while keeping the system in mind. And I, I find that to be a very effective model. I, I don't always use it. I mean, typically with families, I will see them you know, together, but a lot of times I'll see them separately. And, and there's a lot of other clinicians that operate that way as well. But anyway, Bowen was pretty strict on this. He would the family would come in and then he would try to figure out the most differentiated parent and then he would convince that parent to be the only one that comes in. Okay, so again, step 1, understand the theory, step 2, differentiate from your family of origin, step 3, assess the problem, step 4, convince one person to come into therapy, and step 5 is uh to actually just do the therapy. And so here are here are the various different techniques 
that a Boanian therapist might utilize. So the first thing is to define and clarify the relationships. So the therapist encourages each client to calmly take responsibility for their part in the issue. The therapist asks questions designed to help the client focus on the self rather than other people. The therapist tries to draw connections between the the current situation and the family of origin of the parents. The therapist asks questions that promote insight and awareness. So so some people would say that Bowenian therapy is not insight based, but I would say it, it's very insight based. It's very much based on helping clients to understand what's happening. Bowenian therapists they try to teach they try to teach in a very educational way the functioning of the family emotional system, you know, in the way a teacher teaches a student. The therapist tries to teach the family to see the situation as a system rather than just focusing on the surface complaints. The therapist asks questions that try to reveal the patterns of the family and the, and the history. The, the way that Bowenian therapy is often depicted is it's asking a lot of questions, but basically you're trying you're asking questions that are trying to teach the client something like you might say something like you know the the family comes in and says so we're fighting with Johnny about him not going to school and then you might say something like so ha- did did you ever fight with your parents about school or did anyone in your family have a problem along these lines with with your parents and so you're just asking a question but you're also kind of saying something, you know? And so in this way, you're trying to help help the family understand what's happening. So it's a very, it's, it's one of the only family therapies that really tries to help the family understand. A lot of family therapies don't require the family understand anything at all. So in that way, those other therapies are a lot quicker than Bowenian uh, family therapy. So you're trying to assess the nodal events, the, the events that that, that were of particular interest to the family, important historical events. You're trying to help the family understand what happened around that time and, and why it happened. You, as the therapist, are assuming that the symptomatic child is not the problem or the symptomatic spouse is not the problem. You always keep that in mind. Emotions might be explored quite in depth, but in an intellectual way. So Bowenian therapists won't won't try to increase passion and emotion in therapy, but they'll explore emotions and, and really try to look at emotions from an objective point of view. Boenian therapists are desperate to keep themselves from being triangulated by the client and the family. Bowen believed that any emotional problem between two people will resolve automatically if they if that person remains in contact, but separate and free of tri- of triangulation. So in this way, Bowen trained his therapists to allow themselves to to be to be attempting triangulated third person but to remain detriangulated in the face of anxiety. Now, it's much easier said than done, believe me. I mean, when you're in the midst of a of hours and hours of therapy in a week, 
it's hard to hold on to that point of view. It's hard to remember to remain yourself, and it's easy to get sucked into things. And Bowen believed that if you can resist that pull to get sucked into people's triangulations while at the same time being in contact with the system, then that is curative to the family. That will help each person raise their differentiation level, and it will help people in the family differentiate among themselves and not be so overlapped in terms of their personalities. So the therapist needs to maintain a non-anxious presence while they're in contact with the clients. They need to stay differentiated and quote-unquote objective. They need to avoid transference by remaining as objective as possible. They also want to help the main triangle detriangulate itself by coaching people. Another way of putting this is to avoid getting infected by the emotional reactivity in the family. And as I said earlier, the therapist does not take sides. The therapist really avoids the temptation to take a side in a conflict, even if one side seems very, very much right. But the idea in Bowenian theory is that the person that's right is just being particularly compelling to you to triangulate you and or that person is the overfunctioner. Now, some might say, well, geez, you know, this is very cold and, and very uninvolved therapy. But Bowenian therapists would say that empathy is fine. You, know, you, can, you can absolutely have a lot of empathy and positive regard, but you just don't want to get wrapped up or involved in people's problems. Another main thing that therapists, Bowenian therapists strive to do is to model differentiation for the therapists. So model differentiation for the clients. So because the therapist is in contact with the system, there's this, there's a pull to act from a fused position. But if you remain differentiated, not only is that going to help the family, but you can also model that differentiation level for the, for the family. And you do this sometimes by taking an I position stand. I talked about this a little bit earlier, but this is a, this is a major concept in Boeanian therapy is for everyone, therapists and clients and everybody to attempt to always take an I position. And basically an I position statement is something that is calm. It's a clear statement of personal opinion. You're not blaming other people. You're not criticizing other people. You're not getting into an emotional debate with someone. You're not reactive. Um, You say what you feel uh, rather than commenting on what other people are doing. So, you know, there's other, other ways of putting this. It's a a, a very close cousin to this is an I statement, but this that isn't his language. Bowen's language was an I position stance. So you can speak from an I position without using an, an I statement, if that makes any sense. So, because, and, and, and if you're not familiar, an I statement is I feel hurt when you call me names, and I would wish that you not call me names so that it doesn't hurt my feelings. That's an I statement. Another thing that a Bowenian therapist tries to do a, a major thing is they try to help the client to express their own differentiation, to raise their differentiation, and to express higher differentiation for themselves. So you help people with ways of coping, help, help them with their anxiety, help give them skills about how to reason when they're anxious and how to have access to their intellectual guidance system. So you might teach just distress awareness 
or distress management skills or mindfulness or stress reduction skills. You want to help people manage their emotions. You want to lower the client's anxiety or tension. So in this way, sessions might be quite intellectual rather than emotional. So you're, you're doing a lot of analyzing and you're doing a lot of skill building and you're not doing a lot of eliciting of emotions because that's not really a, a focus of Bowenian therapists. If you do see a family and it's not just an individual, then Bowenian therapists will encourage clients to talk only to the therapist and not to each other. And again, this is antithetical to many other family therapists who will often try to get the families to talk to each other. But Bowen really wanted the clients to talk directly to him because they were less reactive that way. And again, remember, he's really trying to get people to calm down and think. And the quickest way to get people to not think is for them to start talking at each other and, and getting in conflict. I, I personally don't agree with this. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an integrated therapist, and Bowen, Bowenian theory is only a part of that. So I don't adhere to this. I definitely see the benefit of having clients talk amongst themselves and even duke it out sometimes, not physically but, but verbally. And the final thing that... Bowenian therapists will do is they will help clients to do their own family of origin work. So after you've you know you've you've learned the theory and you've done your own food you've done your own family of origin work, and then when you see the client, you've assessed the problem, and then you've convinced the the family about who needs to come into therapy. And then you've, you've clarified the relationship. You've taught them how the family functions. You've kept yourself detriangulated. You've modeled differentiation level. You've helped your clients express a higher differentiation level than they actually are. You've helped them express a, a higher differentiation level than their baseline. Well, now comes the time when you actually want to raise their baseline differentiation level by coaching them through the differentiation process, the one that you went through with your family of origin, you coach your clients to go through it themselves. So again, you you coach the clients to have a one-on-one relationship with their family of origin members and, and you know have those intentional meetings and remain calm and detriangulate. So as you can see, Bowen recommended a very uninvolved approach to therapy. It's a very lighthearted approach. He used humor a lot. He wanted sessions to be calm and cool rather than passionate and conflictual and emotional. Bowen and his followers even call themselves, they don't call themselves therapists. They call themselves coaches or consultants rather than therapists, you know, because the word coach connotes that people help in an active expert way or they you know they teach rather than someone that provides therapy. So Bowenian therapists call themselves coaches. It also has a more collaborative language to it, you know, because a coach is is like a helper just trying to help someone work on their own strengths, right? Rather than a therapist, which has connotations of someone that's over somebody. And since you want your clients to differentiate and take responsibility for themselves, you don't want to perpetuate that one up, one down relationship. You want your client to feel like they're in the driver's seat. And so that's another reason why they use the word coach. 
Another interesting thing about the Bowenian technique is that therapists spend a lot of time teaching their client about how triangles work and how to detriangulate. And there aren't a lot of therapies that emphasize teaching so much as much as Bowenian therapy does. A lot of therapies would say that if you're, if you're teaching your client something, then you've really lost sight of what's important. But in Bowenian therapy, it's, it's an integral core part of the therapy is to teach your clients how systems work and how triangles work and how to de-triangulate. So it's a very open therapy in that way. You, you as a therapist or as a coach are basically telling your client everything that's in your head. You're not holding anything back. You're saying, well, here's what I see and here's what I've learned in school and here's what I think you should do and, and all that stuff. And honestly, I, I've done a lot of that. I don't know if it's just because I'm an instructor and I naturally like to do that, but when appropriate, I, I like to give that to clients because I do think it empowers them. And I've seen a lot of clients really take to it. They'll say, they'll say, oh, I get it now. You know, rather than trying to Socratically get the client to realize what's in my head, I just tell them, I say, you know what, here's, here's what I'm thinking. And I, I don't know because I'm not you, but, but here, here's, what it, here's what it seems like what's happening here. And I'm not going to use jargon and that sort of stuff because, you know, I don't have enough time to teach them all, the, all of our dumb little words. But I'll try to speak in a general you know, way. Okay, so in summary, a Bowenian therapist in general, and I'm sure there's a lot of variation across different Bowenian therapists, but if I were to become a purist, this is what I would do, is you want to, again, first understand the theory well. You want to differentiate from your own family of origin. And then when you're working with clients, you want to assess the problem, assess the system, assess the history of the family going back several generations. You want to assess dif differentiation. You want to find out who's the focused on child. You want to assess for triangles. Then you want to talk with the family about who needs to be in therapy. And then you want to start working with your clients that you've decided are the most important people to work with, perhaps the most differentiated parent. And then you want to, again, start assessing some more and you want to start teaching this person how the system operates. You want to help them to detriangulate. You want to help them to be more differentiated. There's a lot of process questions rather than content questions. You're asking how the system works, how the patterns operate in the family, how this individual or this family can break those patterns, be more thoughtful about things, take responsibility for their part in it rather than looking at other people and blaming them. You want to try to figure out how, how to have the triangles become less dysfunctional. You want to help people take eye positions. And all the while, as a therapist, you need to remain as differentiated and detriangulated as possible. And in the end, if you have time, which takes a while, after they've met some initial goals, you might want to help the clients actually do their own family of origin work in which they go back to their family of origin and differentiate in the way that Bowen did. So, so that's it in a nutshell. All right. So the last few things I want to talk about has to do with critique and, and my own thoughts about this theory and technique. So the, the, the main critique of Bowenian theory and therapy is from the feminists. And feminists have been criticizing 
Bowen and his theory for decades, since they believe that the Bowenian theory privileges the dominant values of Western culture, things like masculinity. The theory is Western-centric. It, it privileges independence over being connected to people. It privileges reason over emotion. And it devalues relatedness and group orientation. And this is a very Northern European white male thing, right? You got to be independent. You got to do things on your own. I didn't need nobody. I just needed myself. You know, it's a very Northern European way of looking at things. And there are lots of other ways of looking at things. And many people would say that, it basically makes people into these distancing robots or something. And perhaps for some people that's a, that's a functional way to live, but for many people that denies them the benefits of being in a group and losing yourself inside of a group or being dependent on people mutually. You know, if you can depend on someone that's dependable and they depend on you because you're dependable, then that's mutual dependence, which can be a good thing. And Bowenian theory might look at that and say that that's not a functional situation. And of course, there's lots of variation among Bowenian therapists. And so there, there are different ways of looking at it. So, you know, many contemporary Bowenians tend to defend Bowen's ideas by saying that it, it doesn't indeed value distance. And instead, it values balance between distance and togetherness. So, it's hard to say. It's sort of one of those debates where it just really depends on how you define and apply Bowenian theory. If you're the sort of person that uses Bowenian theory to sort of justify your cultural bias toward independence and away from togetherness, then you know the feminist critique might apply to you. But if you're one of those Bowenian therapists that tends to see it more of a a range or it depends on the cultural values of the clients or it's more of a balance thing or more of a choice thing. You know, does the client have the choice between togetherness and separateness? And that's what you work on rather than privileging one or the other. So it really depends. And when people argue about this sort of thing, I always just have to remind myself that it really just depends on how you apply it because there is a lot of room for, interpretation within Bowenian theory. But at the same time, I think that the feminist critique is important to keep in mind because without it, we can perhaps get lost in the northern white male uh, bias, so to speak. And with the feminist critique that has been happening, you know, for the last 30 or 40 years regarding Bowenian theory, it, it helps perhaps balance it out. It's a it's a good addition to Bowenian theory. It's like if you're if you're a Bowenian therapist and you're well aware of the feminist critique and, and understand it and are on board with it, then that might balance you out as a therapist, just in my opinion. Um, but for those of you that are, you know, staunch Bowenian people and might be feeling like, hey, you can't critique this this theory, I just, you know, you know, want to remind people that most theories of psychotherapy were developed by privileged white males who grew up in the early 1900s. Most of the theories that therapists follow were developed by white males that 
grew up, you know, in the early to mid 1900s and in, in the States and in, in Europe and privileged areas of Europe. So it's only natural that the theories will reflect their experience and their culture. So to expect Bowen to somehow not be from his time and place in history is just unreasonable. You know, it's like when we look back in time and see Thomas Jefferson, the paragon of liberty and justice, and yet he had slaves galore, many, many slaves. And so you just look back at that and it's like, how does that make any sense? Well, it's hard to evaluate Thomas Jefferson from our standpoint because we're in a totally different time. Now, we can absolutely judge him and we can absolutely moralize about you know that, and there's been debates about that forever, but we won't really know as modern people what it was like to live in that society, or at least it's really difficult to figure that out. So in the same way, we can't expect Bowen to somehow be not of his time. And his time was dominated by white males and their perspective. So it just kind of makes sense that it would be a little biased, at least in that direction. So with all of the psychotherapy theories that come from that time, whether it's psychodynamic theory or cognitive theory or behavioral theory, we have to kind of update them a little bit into our current times. That doesn't mean that our current times are better. It's just the culture is different now. And so we just have to always be adjusting as time moves forward. Because sometimes when people critique or they read critiques of different theories, what they'll do is they'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. I've seen this time and again. It's sort of this black and white thinking. I'll see people, you know, they'll they'll study, for instance, Boeanian theory, and then they'll read the critique and they'll they'll be convinced by the critique. They'll say, "Oh my God, yes, it is totally white male, you know, Northern European privilege and distance. This is terrible." Uh, I reject all of Bowenian theory. The whole thing is a sham. I need to get rid of it. It's terrible. And I, I, I just think that it, it's, it's, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's, it, there's a lot of good things, a lot of useful things within Bowenian theory that can, that can help therapists and help clients and to just reject the whole thing because it has some, some issues is, I think, uh, a tragedy to some extent. So that's just another thing. All right. So let's go on to some more critiques here. There's the postmodern critique. And so if you're aware of postmodernism, then you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, then this might not make any sense to you. But for family therapists, they often know about this critique that is often applied to many theories. So the postmodern critique of Boenian theory is that it doesn't acknowledge the cybernetics of cybernetics, as they call it. And I won't go into this because it would take a whole podcast or, I don't know, years really to explain this. But but anyway, if you're in the know about cybernetics of cybernetics, then you'll know that Boenian theory doesn't acknowledge this. And again, most theories of the time, if not all, were ignorant or just didn't think to apply this level of meta-thinking to their work. In other words, Boenian therapists in general consider themselves to be separate objective observers rather than a subjective participant in the system. That's in a nutshell what cybernetics of cybernetics means, is that in the past we used to have this 
paradigm, shall we call it, in which the clinician was a was an objective observer of reality and their opinions and their observations they would take as fact and they would communicate them as if they were facts. So if you're talking with a client and the client is saying something like, yeah, so my wife was being totally unreasonable and the therapist in their mind is thinking, no, the wife was not being unreasonable. Actually, the husband was being unreasonable. And so the therapist says to themselves, I'm right and the client is wrong. Now, this is a crude example, but but just roll with me for a second. And what postmodernists, relativists, and social constructionists, and these sorts of people would say is that neither person can know what's right. They can only know what their brains are telling them at the time, so to speak. They can only know what their social constructions are telling them at the time. And there's no way to know if the clinician is right or the client is right. And because of our cultural understanding that clinicians are supposed to be brilliant and and smart and better than their clients, then we naturally privilege their opinion, which of course makes no sense. So again, as with the feminist critique, some postmodernists will just, compl- and I've seen this happen because in the family therapy world, there's like, you have postmodernists and people that aren't so staunch postmodernists and the postmodern people like the super solution focused narrative people will will look at Bowenian theory and just say, ah, oh, it's crap because it's not postmodern and doesn't consider cybernetics or cybernetics. And so therefore I'm going to throw the whole thing out and that's fine for them. But to me, again, it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Okay. So we had the feminist critique, the postmodern critique, and now the systemic critique the systemic critique is interesting because a lot of people associate Bowenian family therapy to be a, a systemic way of thinking. In fact, it was originally called family systems therapy, family systems theory. And so it has systems in the name, and yet system, pure systemic people would look at Bowenian theory and, and have a hard time with it because it's mainly linear. It, Bowenian theory has a very linear causality element in it. In a number of ways. For instance, it has this linear causality between multi generational transmission, as I was talking about earlier. You know, one of the main tenets of Bowen's understanding of the world was that each generation targeted one of the children with their undifferentiation, and that child targeted their children. And that child targeted one of their children with their fusion, and so on and so on. And this is a very linear perspective. A nonlinear perspective would look at any system in any given time and as it develops over time and how each element contributes to it, and that it's not parent to child. You know, the Bowenian theory is very parent to child causality, whereas pure systemic thinkers see it as a circular causality thing where parents definitely affect children, but children definitely affect parents. The children definitely contribute to the system. Now, most would say that the parents have much more power, which is obvious, and much more control over how they react because they're supposed to be mature. But any smart family therapist knows that children definitely bring something to the table, particularly as they get older, right? So there is a valid systemic critique of Bowenian theory. And again, I don't believe we need to completely throw out Bowenian theory, but if you incorporate circular causality and try to move away from the linear thinking of Bowenian theory, I think you can sort of, you can keep the things about Bowenian theory that I think 
are helpful, like differentiation and triangulation and some of these other things, while incorporating more systemic ways of thinking, sort of an integrative thing. So, so far, I think I would say if you're going to be a Bowenian therapist, it's important to recognize the feminist critique and incorporate that, the postmodern critique, and sort of downplay your own privilege and your and the notion that you have a grasp on reality because you just have a grasp on your own reality, your version of reality. And then always keep in mind the systemic critique as well. So, so my critique, just getting into some of the more details of my critique of Bowen's theory, is that he definitely seemed to privilege independence over attachment. I, I would say that the feminist critique is is right in that way. It seems rather clear to me when you read his writings. Now, modern contemporary Bowenian therapists don't seem to do this, but 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 Bowen definitely did, in my opinion. And so if you're a Bowenian therapist, I think you just always have to keep that in mind. And again, he's a product of his time and, and his own family, by the way, because again, he came from a very enmeshed family. And so he in a way, the way that I see it, it's like for Bowen, he grew up in an extremely enmeshed family, it seemed, or at least to some extent, an enmeshed family. And so to him, in his life, in his personal experience, the best thing he could do was try to distance himself because there was always a pull back to his enmeshed family. And so if he, he, if he put a lot of pressure on individuating and differentiating from them, that he would strike balance because he could never achieve full disengagement from them because they were they were so close as a family and so he would always feel close to them regardless of how far away from them he distanced himself because there was always gravity back to them now you take another family that's very disengaged and very avoidant of attachments and you tell those people to to individuate well they're going to look at you and say I'm already qu quite distanced from my family. I need to move closer to my family. I need to have more contact with them. We all need to have more contact with, with each other. That's where we're out of balance. And so if Bowen had, for whatever reason, come up with his theory, but come from a disengaged family, I think he would have worded things differently. I think he would have talked about more attachment as being important. So it's just, it's just kind of my opinion. It's hard to know because he's not alive anymore and I can't interview him, but but it just seems like that's the reason why he he tended to privilege independence over attachment. In a way, it's almost like he thought that attachment and closeness was a given, that you, know, you didn't really have to put much effort into closeness because you would always have that in families. And what you needed to put effort into was to have reasoning and, and distance. That's what you needed to put your energy into because of the background that you came from. And of course, other families, it would be flipped and, and the opposite. So I think that Bowenian therapists need to keep that in mind so that they don't push people in directions that are not helpful. I think they need to be a little careful that they don't fall into the same bias that Bowen, I think, fell into, which is to privilege independence over attachment. And again, most contemporary Bowenian therapists would say it's not about pushing a client in any direction. It's about helping the client achieve their own balance. And, you know, that's, that's a good rule to follow. Also, another critique is that Bowen didn't discuss, cult didn't discuss culture very often. You know, for example, in, in other cultures, they have different ideas about what individuation is and what triangulation is. And so Bowenian therapists today need to, again, add 
culture to their to their training, which of course you could never become you know fully competent in. So you just need to always keep in mind that if the client comes from a different cultural background as you do, then you might be speaking different languages, or there might be different things that are that are important to you than that are important to them. For instance, just as a as an example, you know, for mainstream Americans. If you're a 30-year-old child and you're still living in your parents' home, then that is often seen as a problem. You, you haven't launched yet. There's something wrong with you. You're not independent. You're too dependent on your parents. Whereas for a, really, I think, the majority of the world, aside from mainstream America, most children live with their parents for a long time, even after they get married. I know in Japan, a lot of children will get married, have kids, and live with their parents. The, so there's three generations in a family home, and it's totally normal and, and functional. And to us today, and again, mainstream America, if, if you're a mainstream American, you would find that to be just terrible if to, to not have your own house. So that's just, again, something to always keep in mind. Uh, if you no, regardless of what sort of therapist you are, is is not to be biased uh, from your own cultural standpoint, particularly if you're the dominant American culture, because it's so easy to feel like your perspective is the right one because there's not a lot of opposition to it. Another critique, a strong critique, I think that I can come up with regarding Bowenian theory and therapy is that it ignores trauma. And it reduces everything to fusion and undifferentiation. So it doesn't recognize that when someone has been traumatized, that they have a that it's it's really it really needs to be treated differently. You know what what Bowen might even say, and maybe he even did this. I don't know. Given the way that Bowenian therapy is described, I can imagine the following scenario: you have, say, a uh, a girl who is sexually abused by her father, and then she grows up and has PTSD and complex PTSD, and she goes to a Boonian therapist, a purist, and that therapist assesses her and finds out that she has been uh, sexually abused and, and that she's fused with her father, which, which is probably the way that they would see it. They would assess that she, you know this young girl was triangulated into the parents' relationship. And at some point, the therapist might recommend that the client do some family of origin work by going back home. And unless you had a pretty strong addendum to Bowenian theory and therapy that incorporated contemporary ideas of trauma, recovery, and therapy, you could do a lot of harm. So if someone is traumatized, in my opinion, you cannot purely use Bowenian therapy. For, for a lot of things, you could probably just use Bowenian therapy and be fine. But if someone's been traumatized, you absolutely cannot just use Bowenian theory. You, you have to have a strong understanding of trauma and how to treat it. So that's just another critique I have. Another critique I have of his theory is that it's a little too simple. It's a little reductive in that everything hinges on one's differentiation from one's family of origin and particularly one's parents. You know, it, it seems a little simple, don't you think, that all of your problems stem from your differentiation from your own parents. You know, it just, it just seems kind of odd. I, I, I'm an absolute 
believer that becoming differentiated from one's parents helps you in a lot of ways, but I in no way consider that to be the source of all people's problems. I mean, he even thought that your physical health was based on this differentiation. Because again, he was trying to devise a theory that explained everything. And I think he overextended his his theory. Now, does that make his theory uh, bad and unuseful? Absolutely not. But I think it's a little, the way that he described it, a little overextended. Another critique that I kind of discussed earlier, which is that he put too much emphasis on multi-generational transmission of fusion and not enough emphasis on current stressors. Someone comes into therapy and say they've just lost their job and their child died and I don't know, they've, they, they're going through a lot of difficulties. Well, the Bowenian therapist is trained not to value the content of what the client is talking about and to be much more concerned about the process. So the Bowenian therapist would look at a person that comes in, again, at the purest. And if you're a Boinian therapist out there and you're not like this, then great. But if you're just following the theory to the letter of the law, if someone comes in and says, you know, I've lost my job and my child died and I'm really distressed and I don't know what to do, then the way that the therapist would see the problem is that the client is lacking in differentiation and needs to differentiate more and be more intellectual and to reason their way through a situation. Now, they would definitely recognize that they're going through a difficult time and they would empathize with that, absolutely. And they would absolutely see these as major stressors on one's differentiation level, but they wouldn't necessarily target the the loss and the grief and the working through of those feelings. They would they would mainly focus on what they're trained to focus on, which is differentiation and individuation and taking responsibility. And that might help someone in that situation, but in my opinion, and in my, I think most therapists' opinion that would be ignoring a major piece of what therapy can offer a client, which is the, uh, the, the chance to grieve and the chance to really emote and the chance to really get some things off of their chest. And so just another critique of Boynian theory and therapy. And again, another reason that I believe that everyone should be integrated, that Boynian therapy works really well with some things, but with other sort of things, it, it probably doesn't work as well. So just another plug for integrative therapy. Another critique that I would have of Boonian theory is that it splits emotion and reason into two distinct categories. So you remember the two different guidance systems. He said that you have a, a feeling or emotional guidance system and you have a intellectual or reasoning guidance system and they're two discrete different things. And many people today have a lot of debates about how the brain works and whether or not these sorts of dichotomies are useful or accurate or really worth anything. And so, you know, I'm not an expert in this area, but I'm guessing if you went to some of these philosophers and, and neuroscientists that they would say that it's a bit of a meaningless metaphor to, to just say that you have this reptile brain 
that is reactive, and then you have this human brain that is intellectual. That the the brain is really a very complex system that involves all of your systems. <laughs> Another critique I would have of Bowen in, in particular is that it's kind of convenient that he thought that working with the most differentiated person was the most effective. Uh, I, you know, again, he's not alive, so I can't ask him this, but it it. As a family therapist myself, I, I just I just have to wonder about the following thing. I just have to wonder. It's like when you work with families, the more people you add, the more difficult the session becomes in some ways. In some ways, it's more easier. But in some ways, it's harder because there's more people. There's more chance of conflict. There's more chance that the, the clients are going to look to you as a therapist to really help because things might spin out of control. Uh, things are more likely to spin out of control when there's more people in the room. And so it's a lot more stressful as a, as a therapist. Now, what family therapists like myself will say is, well, then all the more reason to be with the client in that situation. You want to not only see what the family is really like, but you want to be able to help them with that. And to, to avoid that is to just take the easy, to take the easy road. Well, it's a little convenient that Bowen thought that the best way to do therapy was to find the most mature, most highly functioning person in the family and work individually with that person and not work with any of the other people in the family. A lot of family therapists would look at this and think, well, isn't that convenient that your, that your theory allows you to have such a easy time and you get to avoid uh, uh, perhaps the more important work? Now, again, what Bowen would say is by helping this very differentiated person in the system, that person goes home and helps the whole system. And I, I'm, an, I'm a believer of that. But I'm also a believer that if there's family conflict or if someone's having a hard time, that you probably as a therapist should talk with that person and see if you could help in some way. It's, you know, it's, it's a critique that I have of Bowenian theory. Now, I have a suspicion that most contemporary Bowenian therapists don't do this, but I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe they determine who the most differentiated person is in, uh, among the parents and work individually with that person. But I have a hard time uh, imagining that uh, contemporary family therapists would do that. So I don't know. Another critique that I have of Boinian therapy is that it probably would not work very well with resistant clients or clients who have a hard time understanding theory very well because, you know, Boinian therapists are trying to teach. And so if you have a client that doesn't have the time or just isn't interested or doesn't have the intellectual capacity or whatever to understand theory very well, then they're going to have a hard time with this with this therapy. And again, if they're resistant to learning, you know, um, then they're not likely to benefit from it. So you'd really have to have someone that's on board and, and that could uh, dedicate the time and energy to actually understanding what the Boinian therapists are trying to do. Um, I also think it wouldn't work well with someone that doesn't have a lot of time for therapy. And, you know, because a lot of, I think there's something like the average amount of sessions that a client goes to is like three or five, <laughs> you know, and whenever I say that to people, they're always shocked. 
they, you know, it's like, what? You know, because a lot of therapists really want to work with people for a long period of time. But the reality is, is that most people only come in for three, four, five sessions. And so you, as a therapist, you really have to incorporate that fact into the way that you work with clients. And so if everything's based on this long-term outlook, then you're really only going to get barely started with half your clients because most of them are going to go for a few sessions and feel like they got something out of it and, and terminate and end therapy. So that's another issue that I think Boinian therapists have to keep in mind. Another critique that I have of Boinian theory is that for some people, not myself, but I think for some people, Boinian theory, theory might really be a turnoff to them because it's very intellectual and it's very concrete and it, and it doesn't involve intuition. It doesn't involve, uh, you know, I, I know a therapist that that believes in magic. I mean, she, she literally believes in magic and believes that magic occurs in session. And Bowenian theory just doesn't have any of that in it. <laughs> so, so I think it's not really my critique, but I can imagine some people being really turned off by Bowenian theory because it just lacks magic and it lacks intuition and it lacks the squishiness that other theories offer. And I just have to say that I've, I've seen and read debates among Boeanian therapists and other people. And in my experience, Boeanian therapists tend to get fairly defensive when they are offered the critique, when they're presented the critique of their theory. And when you get defensive about a critique, it's never a good sign. It's always, it, it to me, it's a sign that you're insecure about your position and really, every theory and approach has its limitations. Every, there, there isn't any particular theory, in my opinion, that can just stand on its own without some valid person or a group of people saying, this theory has this particular problem. And so when Boenian therapists get defensive, then I, I just have to say, you know, everyone cool your jets. The, the critique needs to take into account that Bowenian theory and therapy is are definitely useful and the you know the people offering the critique need to have a balanced point of view as well they can't just blast Bowenian therapists and you know they have to recognize that there there is definite useful usefulness to it but the Bowenian therapists also have to recognize to the people who are critiquing that they that they're valid and really the best result is when you incorporate the critique, as I was saying earlier. When you take Boenian theory and therapy and you're aware of the critique and you incorporate the necessary elements to account for th these issues, then you really have a strong therapeutic approach. You have a weak therapeutic approach when you adhere rigidly to a particular theory and reject all critiques of something. You know, think of it more personally. You're in a marriage and your spouse, after dealing with a particular issue of yours for a year, comes to you and says, I don't like it when you do blank. Well, imagine at that point saying, screw you. You don't know what you're talking about. That's not true. <laughs> I reject your critique of my behavior and I'm going to continue doing the, the, you know, I'm going to continue acting the way that I was before. Well, you can understand that that would be an unfair and very unhappy way to live. Imagine the alternative where you say, 
Oh, thank you for telling me, spouse. That must have been really hard for you. I will absolutely consider that and adjust my behavior to make you happy because I want to be happy too. I want because I want you to be happy and that makes me happy. So we're all good. So in the same way, when Boenian therapists receive critique, I think this is an, an important approach. Okay. So last couple of things I want to talk about are um, what I like about the theory, and then I'll talk about a very short case study, and then I'll adjourn. This might be the longest episode I've ever recorded. I think I'm looking at the time right now, and it's like three hours. My God. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right. What do I like about it? Well, the concept of differentiation is a very useful concept. There, there really isn't anything like it. There's ego strength in psychodynamic theory, but differentiation is so specific and so well thought out that I think it's, it's just a, a really useful concept. And I, I highly recommend that you as a clinician utilize the, the concept of differentiation. Um, maybe not how the differentiation came about, but at least describing someone's current state, their current personality. You know, this person exhibits this sort of differentiation level. I think it, it really helps in terms of understanding and conceptualizing behavior. So I think differentiation is a very useful concept. I really like the way Boinian theory conceptualizes pathology as a relational issue. Now, I don't always think this is a useful way of looking at things, but I definitely think it is sometimes. You know, in our American culture and in other cultures, I'm guessing as well, we tend to look at problems in individuals and say, well, there's something wrong with them. You know, you know, if, if Johnny, little Johnny is being rebellious, then we, we tend to think of Johnny as being a bad apple which you know, can, could be a good, useful way of looking at it. But Bowenian theory says it's not Johnny, it's the system. And it's the parenting, and it's the way the system operates. And so we need to address the system. And this is a very useful way of thinking about things and very effective, believe me. If you're a therapist and you are ignoring this as a possibility, I think you're really ignoring some very useful paths regarding therapy. Boinian theory offers a very useful way of tracking emotions and anxiety as they move through families, particularly through the triangulation process. So I think in that way, it's very useful. It provides a very useful model. I think that Bowen's idea of the one-on-one -on -one relationship is a wonderful idea. I think that he, he brings something up that a lot of people don't talk about, which is that when you're in a group of people, even if it's three people, it's hard to really get anything done. I think it's just sort of this mob mentality that takes over. Whereas if you sit down one-on-one -on -one with someone, it's you can get so much more done. Now, at the same time, Bowen would say there's a lot more anxiety when you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody, which I would say is also true. And there, there's a tendency to talk about other people. I have worked with a lot of clients in this way and found that it's very useful for people to have one-on-one -on -one relationships with people. Not that, not at the exclusion of group socializing events, but that if you really want to grow in a relationship, it really requires talking with somebody. And, and the best way to do that is if it's just the two of you. Now, that can be highly anxious, but if you can manage to remain differentiated, then 
you might be able to find a lot of success and thereby increasing your well-being. Another thing I like about Buinian theory is that the is of is the concept of the focused on child. This concept is is very useful when considering families, as I was kind of talking about earlier. Another thing I like about Buinian therapy that I mentioned before is that it gives family therapists the permission to see just one person. If we didn't have Bowen in our history, we might not have any precedent or any respected family therapist to point to and say, look, that person was a family therapist and yet met with just one person in the system. And so in this way, it, it, he paved the way for all of us to be able to do that when, when we want to and when we think it's appropriate and helpful. I also really like Bowen's emphasis on anxiety and tension and stress and how that affects emotional reactivity. It's, it's an extremely useful way of looking at the world. Again, it's related to the concept of differentiation. It's really useful to look at things as uh, a spectrum of emotional reactivity. It's like, so when you were having that fight with your spouse the other day, how emotionally reactive were you? Were you, th- were you able to think straight? How differentiated were you in that moment? How, how much access to your reasoning guidance system, your intellectual guidance system did you have? You know, this, it's, a, it's an extremely um, useful way of assessing and helping people and framing it for the client. Because if you, you know, a lot of people, what will happen in my experience is they'll have a fight with their spouse and then the next day they'll review it in their mind and they will have a hard time figuring out how the fight started, and they'll just do a lot of blaming of their spouse. They'll say, well, it's all their fault because blah, blah, blah. And one of the problems is that they might go into denial in terms of what they said themselves because they don't want to think of themselves as being a jerk. They don't want to think of themselves as being mean, and so they'll just go into denial about what they said. Well, a a useful way of, of sort of helping people accept the things that they said and did during the conflict is to say that it's normal when you're stressed and anxious to become emotionally reactive and to lose your ability to think straight. This is a very useful way to frame things for clients because then it gives them the permission. It's like it's, it's telling them it, it's normal basically to lose the ability to think when you're in a conflict. And so that gives permission for the client to say, yeah, I did sort of lose control. And yeah, I did say some things that I, I wouldn't have said normally. Instead, if you don't have that reframe, clients, again, they might go into denial about what they said, or they might identify with what they said. They might say, well, I said that, so that must, that must mean I really think that. So therefore, I really don't like my spouse, that kind of thinking, if that makes sense. Another reason why I like Boleynian theory is that it merges psychodynamic ideas and systemic ideas. If I had to choose two different theories, I would choose psychodynamic theory and systemic theory, although I'm a fully integrated therapist, so I incorporate, and I incorporate lots of different theories. But uh, in this way, I like this theory. I also like its emphasis on making the therapists responsible for their own differentiation level. It's one of the only theories that has, as a part of its therapy, a requirement that the therapists do their own personal work. 
you might find that that is a bit shocking if you're not in the therapy world. But most theories and therapy models don't require that the therapist do their own work. There's an implication there, and there's a self-care discussion and, and that sort of thing. But, but within the Bowenian model is the very explicit requirement that the therapists need to go through their own family of origin work, which I think is fantastic. So it's similar to, the, to early psychoanalysis in this way, in that, or in modern psychoanalysis for that matter, in that in order to become a psychoanalyst, you have to go through your own analysis. Along those lines, at my program at Antioch University Seattle, we follow in Bowen's footsteps along those lines and really encourage our students to do this work. We can't require it, but we definitely encourage it. We do require that they go to therapy, though. And the last thing that I'll say, and again, I've mentioned this before, that I like about Bowenian theory is that it basically provided the basis for one of my favorite classes that I teach at Antioch, which is the family of origin class. Bowenian theory is a major part of that class, and I would just like to thank Bowen for providing us with this. If anyone's interested, you can listen to the episodes of the podcast that are titled Interviewing My Students, I believe. There's Interviewing My Students number one, two, and three. And that's a series of episodes where I'm interviewing my students about their experience in the family of origin class, which again has a, has a Boenian element to it. Okay, the last thing I want to do is just talk about a brief case study just to help ground this in a real situation. So I'm going to present a client, but as always, I've changed details of the client to mask their identity. So just keep that in mind. Okay, so the client was an African-American female. And after one year of working with her on current relationships and, and crisis, crises that were happening in her life, she told me that she wanted to go deeper. She felt like she had gotten a lot, of, a lot out of therapy and that she felt more stable and that she wanted to, to go deeper. So after going back and forth with her collaboratively, I, I proposed that she do some Bowenian family of origin work. It's also mixed with this other guy called Donald Williamson, but I won't go into that just now. But anyway, it, it was, you know, we could consider it Bowenian family of origin work. But So I, ex I explained how it works. I ex and I explained how Boinian family of origin work works, and she agreed to give it a try. So we spent an entire session just drawing her genogram, and there were lots of you know extended family members, and there were lots of different nodal moments, lots of important family events that we mapped out, and then I gave her the genogram to review at home, and she did. And then we talked about it the next session, and she said that she learned a lot, that it was very interesting to her to go over the family genogram, which is a family tree, but with a lot of symbols that symbolize a lot of different relational things. And that was very enriching to her and provided for her a number of insights. She could frame a lot of her experiences within the context of the whole family and the family history. It seemed to provide some comfort to her and some meaning to the things that, that she went through. I mean, if you think about it, when you're a child, you're just experiencing life, right? Your Things are happening to you, and you don't really have an understanding of why they're happening. But when you're an adult, 
and you review all this history and look back on it from an adult's point of view, you can see your parents in a more human light. And a lot of the decisions that they make start to make more sense to you. Maybe you might not think they made the right decision, but they might make more sense to you since you've lived more life and made more of your own mistakes and realized that life can be hard. And so in this way, just by looking at the genogram, it can be very enriching and can help one differentiate. Then with this client, we planned out her home visits. Each time she went home for a holiday, she tried to establish a one-on-one relationship with each of her parents. And she at first told me that she wanted to blast them with a bunch of criticism and confront them on all the all the problems that they created for her. But I coached her in the Boenian style to, to not do that since they will shrink away from her if she does that. And we want to establish ongoing one-on-one relationships with, with them that are differentiated and, you know, thoughtful. And so I, I coached her to just be curious about their lives. And she, you know, uh, trusted me on that and did that instead and was really surprised at how enriching those experiences were. Again, she would go home and just say, so how did, you know, mom and dad, how did you guys meet? And what was your childhood like? And where did you grow up? And what were your parents like? And the parents were really thrilled to share their lives with their child, their adult child. And were also thrilled that their child wasn't blasting them with a bunch of criticism and blame. And so it really enriched their relationship. And, and later on, incidentally, as their one-on-one relationship, uh, as her one-on-one relationships with her parents deepened, she was able to introduce some of these more conflictual topics into the conversation because they had the foundation that they could stand on that would withstand that kind of tension. So she didn't lead with the conflictual confrontations. She waited quite some time before she even hinted at them. And, and even then, she was more diplomatic than she would have been if she just came at it out of the gate. And, and so after six, 12 months of this, she was seemingly, as a result, much calmer about life. We might say she's more differentiated. And she found that she was much less reactive to her current spouse. She had this problem when she first came in where she would get really, she would get in this really bad mood with her, with her husband and she would get really short with him. And at first she, when she would come into therapy, she was just saying, my husband is annoying. I don't like him sometimes and this sort of thing. And then over time we realized that it was a state that she would get into there would just be something that would kind of trigger her and then she'd go into this bad mood state and then she would become very short with him and he would be hurt by that naturally. And as a result of this family of origin work that she did with her parents, she she had a lot le- a lot fewer incidents that were like that. She would say, I haven't been short with my husband in a month or something, whereas usually it would happen every other day. And so hard to say whether or not those two things are related to each other, but in my opinion, and definitely Bowen's opinion, they are related. So when Bowenian therapy works, it, it's really a beautiful thing. All right, so that is a long episode. 
So if you have any thoughts, please contact me. This is We've had a long journey together today with this podcast. You can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or you can go to psychologyinseattle.com and go to the contact us page and you can fill out the form and send me an email. We always love hearing from our listeners. All right, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me and please differentiate.